and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we've got another Civil War battle. This time, we're traveling back a decade to pit two essential films from 2007 against each other to determine which is the essentialiest film of 2007. It's P.T. Anderson's There Will Be Blood versus the Coen Brothers' Oscar-winning No Country for Old Men in a no-holds-barred brawl. As always, we'll begin with a quick review of each film, then they'll come head-to-head in the final Civil War showdown. And once the dust has settled, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... So, Jake, of all the Civil War showdowns we've had, this has got to be the toughest one we've we've ever faced, in my opinion. I don't know about you. I, I feel like you're you're pretty biased. Is that is that a fair assessment? I thought the Sandlot versus Stand by Me was tough, but uh, but but maybe that's just me. This this one seems easier to me. Yeah, that, that and and that's sort of what I'm afraid of is that you're just you're just gonna give it all away to the Coen Brothers, no questions asked. And because of that, I've decided that we're going to bring in. Uh, not exactly a ringer for P.T. Anderson, but someone to balance you out. What's this guy supposed to be? The ultimate badass? Nah, that's not how I'd describe him. Well, how would you describe him? I guess I'd say he's a cinematic savant with a penchant for pictures by Paul Thomas Anderson. Midnight Warriors, we are joined once again by our good friend, Peterson Hill. Peterson, welcome back to the War Bunker. Glad to be back, defending... PTA. So yeah, I, I I feel like I'm going to be in the middle of you two. I, I you know, was uh, looking at your, your letterboxed uh, lists earlier today and noticed that uh, you had No Country for Old Men at the top of your Coen Brothers ranked list. Yes. I've got both of these guys at the top of uh, their list is the films we're talking about. Yeah, but but I feel like you give you probably give P.T. Anderson a bit of a bias as well, given that your description there is uh, the greatest films by the greatest working director, living director right cool. now. So uh, we'll we'll see how this goes. T- he's the greatest non-canonized director we have. So okay, leave Scorsese, Spielberg, all those guys out of it. You know, he is the one right now. I I can't disagree with you, but he's also not he's not exactly my guy. Are 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 you are you putting Nolan as being canonized already? Nolan is not canonized. He All is, right, and, and you would rank yet. him below. I would rank him working directors fifteenth. Wow. Hmm. Well, okay. probably tenth in the top ten, probably. Okay. He's okay. for me. He's one of those guys that he's very good. He's I'm so glad he's he's around, but he also. You know, his stuff comes with baggage for better or worse, I guess, mm-hmm. is is how I would like he's and you're talking about I, I'm talking about Nolan. Right. He's one of those guys that I think if he's uh, reined in just enough, you know, give him the freedom to make whatever it is that he wants, but rein him in just a little bit so he doesn't go and make an interstellar is my opinion. <laughs> I, I think even with the mistakes in interstellar, it, it's still building that. Uh, resume to a future a future canonized director i think he's at least on the path i i am team edgar wright as far as that uh oh of course best best non-canonized director i think baby driver kicked me off the edgar wright canonized list really? oh, are we on the, are we on the same so the same page here yeah it was okay it was kind of what i thought about scott pilgrim versus the world it's it's not great it's not bad it's just there's nothing other than the first scene of baby driver i think it's He's just there's not much there. I need huh. I need to revisit Baby Driver to give it another chance. Uh, 
I, it's actually, it's been added, added to our shared voodoo library. So I, it's there. I just need to take the time to watch it. Scott Pilgrim was sort of the same way for me. Like I, I didn't love it as much as I loved his other films. It's one of those that I can watch at any time though. It's got mm-hmm. so many great moments and it's, I, it's probably also because it's sort of that video game structure of it. Um, you can, you can pop in at any time and just say, okay, well I'm going to watch up until the next evil X. And then you may or may not get sucked in. You guys just have a bias against American films. That's all it is. Against or for? Against. You want them, you want them set with, a, with an English accent. <laughs> if not, you just can't even see the beauty in the film. I see, I oh, see I see what, what you're... Okay, I got you. I see what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so guys, I, up at the top here, before we get into these reviews, there was a, a little headline that... Uh, Jake, you actually pointed this out. Um, and I thought this would be a great way to sort of kick things off because it's in some ways directly related to what we're talking about here. So do you want to you want to tell us a little bit about this AV Club article that you came across? Well, if the first thing I'll say is last week I was uh, complaining to Chris and saying the, the, the thing I don't love about P.T. Anderson is he's got a, a, a very pessimistic worldview. And yeah. so it, it, it makes it difficult for me, who I think is sort of an eternal op or I, I view myself as like an eternal optimist and look, look, I, I'd rather watch a, a Capra film most days. Yeah. So, um, so that being said, Chris disagreed, but then I saw this article on the AV club, um, about Daniel day Lewis, uh, said something along the lines that PT Anderson's new movie, uh, made him want to stop acting because it was so sad. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I think here's, here's a, just a pull quote from the article, which I think was actually quoting a longer interview. Uh, but he's, he said, before making the film, I didn't know I was going to stop acting. I do know that Paul and I were laughing a lot before we made the movie. And then we stopped laughing because we were both overwhelmed by a sense of sadness that took us by surprise. And we didn't realize that we were, what we were giving birth to, uh, it was hard to live with and still is. So that's sort of his statement. And he went on to say that, you know, he actually put out a press release before they finished the film, just saying I'm done acting because he didn't even want anyone to try to pull him back in. Um, but I, I've got to ask, here's the question I want to ask. Do you think this is directly only solely related to Phantom Thread, the new film by Ta- Paul Thomas Anderson with Daniel Day-Lewis? Or do you think this, in my opinion, like this is something that I felt is sort of a long time coming and we've seen him take breaks before, but um, the way that, you know, the stories that you hear about him on set, you know, on the set of Lincoln as Lincoln on that, like the way that he gets into a character, that's got to be taxing on a person, the method uh, way that, that he prepares for, for these films. You know, I think it's something that I don't know if it's actually a retirement. I think he said before, you know, I'm not going to do it anymore. And then he comes back and yeah, I think the right script to bring him back in, you know, I think if he does, if he truly does leave, then it's, a massive loss to the film industry because he is, I mean, electric on screen. Yeah. Um, I mean, just there's nobody who can do what he does. I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I guess my, and my, my perspective here is like, I feel like it's one of those things where it's, uh, you know, the, what he, the, the amazing performance that he gives us, uh, maybe we're not really paying attention to what it's taking out of him each time as well, because like you said, this isn't the first time that he has stepped away. Um, and, and it's maybe like, it, it seems like he just needs to recharge his batteries. And this happens to be a film that really, really drained him, uh, which makes me all the more excited to, you know, kind of see what he's giving us as well. Yeah. But 
Look at Daniel Plainview. Not many films can drain you as much as that is. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. But there's, well, there's an energy to it though. Like a, like a, it's, it's not so much dwelling in, like if you're in the head of Daniel Plainview, it's, it's almost more terrifying from just a, the, I, I feel like your, the way that you would treat people versus something that's seems like, like Phantom Thread seems to have a sadness and a loneliness. If that's, you know, if, if you are getting into it in a method way and you put yourself in that headspace, that's, I, I think that's actually got to be worse than plain view. Look, look, I'm, I'm not disputing that, that these take out a lot of energy from him. And I'm not disputing that he's probably the best actor we have right now, but I have the prescription to make him happy. And he just needs to play a happy character for once. Maybe not take every role where you're miserable, miserable and tortured. I got an idea in the next movie. Hear me out. What if he does the Fred Rogers biopic? Oh my gosh. They just cast him as Mr. Rogers. He gets to be happy for two years and he wants to act for us again. I didn't know I needed this, but I need this. (laughs) I really need this. Huh? Yeah. I, yeah. Who, who directs it, Jake? Well, I mean, I'm going to say Edgar Wright, no matter what. (laughs) But, but I don't think Edgar Wright is right for Fred Rogers biopic. He does look good in a cardigan. (laughs) That's true. That's very true. He's got that built frame for, I think he's probably about 60 now. And he looks, he looks pretty good. I mean, he looks dashing in, in the Phantom Thread trailers and the, uh, the, uh, few photos that, that I've seen. And he's got to be 60 years old, right? In my head, he's been the same age since like 92. Really? No. So he ha- hasn't aged a day, day in my head since uh, Age of Innocence. Maybe it's because he was aged a little bit at the end of that movie. Yeah. No. See, for me, it's, it's more like Gangs of New York. Okay. It feels like from there forward, he's been about the same guy. He's looked about the same since then. Yeah. Yeah. For me too. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's also I, I, when I he started that. to look a bit older and more, more weathered, but he's, he's kept up with that. I think fairly remarkably. Seeing him in There Will Be Blood, he looks about as built as he's ever looked. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if Phantom Third's going to continue that trend or not. No, he, he definitely looks more, he's a gentlemanly figure. Um, but so Jake, I mean, what your, your feeling here is that it's, it is all Paul Thomas Anderson is, is taking him out of like what I, I, yeah, he killed him. He dead now. Paul Thomas Anderson killed him. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I get, I get this helps your, your argument that, uh, you, you really, you don't like his worldview, but I don't know. Well, and you know, we, we will see with, uh, the Phantom Thread, it comes out later this month. Um, probably to us actually early next year. Um, and then we'll see, uh, you know, we'll keep an eye on Daniel Day-Lewis, see if he goes back to cobbling for a little bit and then, you know, returns in a few years or, or what happens. Maybe maybe he makes some weird underground uh, fake rapper documentary with Casey Affleck. <laughs> we can only hope, I guess. <laughs> I was I was legitimately mad when that happened. Really? You found out it was fake? No, no, no. When I when I found out because he what Joaquin Phoenix did two lovers and he was just like I'm out and I was just like no you can't you can't leave you're just like on the up and up and up like he was one of those guys because he was one of those guys that for me was like he's pretty good and then he was making the right decisions and continuing to rise you know probably from Gladiator onward um, sort of sort of like Leo from like the, uh, uh, Catch Me If You Can forward and then when he was just like I'm done. I was really upset. And then I was even more upset when I found out it was all a bad joke. 
I don't know. That Letterman interview, that's when I said, this is probably 100% fake. Oh, I, I saw that and said, that man's on drugs. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen the uh, Crispin Glover when he went on as the character for Re- Reuben Ned and almost kicked David Letterman in the head? No. <laughs> no. Oh, God, it's so good. Uh, it's I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes and I'll send it to you guys. Um, but yeah, he goes on as this character. Doesn't like announce to anyone that he's playing a character from a movie that he doesn't even get to the point of plugging because they kick him off. Like they, they cut to commercial and they come back and they're like, Oh, sorry, Crispin Glover had to catch a cab. Like <laughs> they terminated the the interview early, but yeah, he comes within like inches of kicking David Letterman in the, in the head with these, he's wearing these like six inch platform shoes uh, that the character in the movie wears. It's bizarre. It's from probably like the late eighties, I think mid to late eighties. Uh, anyway, that's, but when, when Joaquin Phoenix did that, that was the first thing I thought was the same, like, this is fake, but this is fake in a Ruben and Ed sort of, sort of way. Um, but anyway, like I, as long as Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't go and do something like that and he's just, you know, I, I don't care if he wants to go and make shoes, that's cool. We'll give him the time that he needs. And then surely, you know, the right thing comes up and he'll come back to us. But do you really think Daniel Day-Lewis has it within him to act like that on Letterman? To be that much of an ass. If he was doing it for a character, maybe. Yeah, it, if his publicist schedules him on the wrong day, then yes. <laughs> just during shooting, just sends him up there. You're good. We could have got an interview with Lincoln. That's, That's true. all I'm saying. Oh my yeah. gosh, that would be incredible. Have you guys seen? We we need, we need to move on, but real quick, have you guys seen uh, Andy and or is it Jim and Andy? The new Netflix documentary about Jim. Not Carrey? yet. As Andy Kaufman. Oh, I've seen I've seen the trailer for it, and I'm, I'm it's, very intrigued. It's it's intriguing. It's good. It's one of those where it's like I, I'll just say I, I recommend it. It's very bizarre how deep Jim Carrey went with like the days that he showed up as uh, Tony Clifton. Like everyone on set was just upset. Like they were they were viscerally like, oh no, not another Tony Clifton day. And he like, he wouldn't like, he would show up to set as Tony Clifton. And on those days he'd showed up with like a paper bag over his head uh, because he wasn't in makeup yet. And so he's just yelling at everyone like him. And then he goes in and, and gets in makeup and then he's just terrorizing. He went to the Amblin uh, offices as Tony Clifton and demanded to see Steven Spielberg. Um, but he's just, he's just terrorizing everyone. And then when he's Andy, he's doing the same thing, but pranking them in, you know, Andy sort of ways. It's fascinating. I'm not sure it was worth it for the movie we got. Um, but it's, it's sort of worth it for this documentary. Although like it raises further questions about mental health and, and those sorts of things. But anyway, that, that is to say, I recommend Jim and Andy. It's on Netflix right now. Uh, check it out. It's only like an hour and a half, so it's a it's a pretty quick watch. And I would have found the time to watch that by now if I weren't rewatching There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men for this. It's it's been high on my list, but but this has been the main thing I've been focused on this week. Okay, yeah, let's uh, let's dive into our reviews. And Jake, since uh, you, I think are going to be more biased towards No Country for Old Men. Let's start with There Will Be Blood and see if we can bring you around to it uh, before you totally uh, knock it all down. Yeah, good 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 luck, Chris. I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. That part of me is gone. Working and not succeeding. All my uh, 
failures has left me uh, I just don't care well if it's in me it's in you there are times when I I look at people and I see nothing worth liking I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone you do about your boy? I don't know. Uh, maybe it'll change. Does your sound come back to you? I don't know. Maybe no one knows that. Doctor might not know that. Where's his mother? talk about those things. I see the worst in people, Henry. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. I've built up my hatreds over the years, little by little. Having you here gives me a second breath. I can't keep doing this on my own. All right, guys, I don't have a formal intro for this one once again. So let's, let's just dive in. Um, Peterson, you're, you're our guest here. Why is this the number one PT Anderson movie for you? Well, I think PTA has always been very messy. That's something he's consistent with throughout his career. And I think something about their blue blood, it pulls in all of the things that he's great at. It, is an exploration of Americana uh, as well as it's capitalism versus religion versus um, two men face up against each other that, you know, spoiler alert, it results in one person getting a bowling pin to the head. And <laughs> it is, I think when I watched it 10 years ago, that ending threw me for a loop and really disoriented me and really took me out of it. And then, back and seen and every single time since I've gotten more attached to the PT, or sorry to the plain view character and I think that that ending is the natural progression of the film there's no no other place you can go yeah no I I agree with that like it's and I I sort of had the same experience like I remember seeing it in the theater and like being really into it and then like it sort of hits that, that last, it's almost like a fourth act, like, and it let, you know, it lasts for a decent amount of time. It's, it's like 20 minutes of not really, you know, we've been, we've been moving the pace up a lot and moving around. And then you get to like this, this place where we've, we've advanced what, 20 some odd years and close to, yeah. And, and it's like, it's a little difficult to know exactly like, but that's, and that's also a thing about the, I, I think PT Anderson's movies have that sort of uh, puzzle piece to them. A lot of times where the first time you're watching, you're just trying to figure out even like what he is presenting to you. And then subsequent times, that's when you really get to dive in. Yeah. I actually think that ending is the strongest part of the movie. I thought it, the, it was the first time I saw it. That's what I thought. And I've rewatched that more than I have really anything else in that movie because it, it's, outstanding the way it's pieced together that i think is the strongest part jake you were just an anomaly on this 
Like, I don't, I don't know of anyone else who was like, yeah, the first time I saw there will be blood, the ending. That was the thing that really hooked me. Chris, I like, I like milkshakes. What can I say? That's when you start talking milkshakes, you're talking my language. Okay. Fair. No, no, but, but seriously, that is the culmination of the whole film. Up, up to that, there are long stretches that I don't enjoy as much, but that's when it really starts to make the statements that I think the film is really trying to make, or at least that's what I thought the first time. I see more of those statements earlier in the film now. Yeah, I mean, I think when when Peterson brought up, you know, it's capitalism versus religion. Um, I mean, Daniel Plainview is a really interesting character in the way that uh, he's he's been pieced together here because mm-hmm. he, like watching this time, I was reminded of um, a phrase that Kai Rizdal from uh, the Marketplace um, it says quite a bit, and I'm, I'm probably going to paraphrase and, and butcher a little bit, but uh, he, he's constantly like in, in talking about the sort of the morality of uh, capitalism and the free market. You know, he, he's constantly saying uh, the market doesn't care whether you live or die. And that's sort of uh, that's sort of Daniel Plainview in a nutshell. But he's not just personified capitalism. He's not just, you know, he's obviously showing off the uh, the worst side of it, the greed of it. But there's a little bit too, like he lets his emotions out a little. And I think that's what makes that character work. Well, I think the moment that solidified that he's not a monster to me, especially upon this rewatch is that the, when HW comes back from San Francisco or Los Angeles, wherever that they sent him, he hugs HW for a good 10 seconds Mm -hmm. and Elspeth's cinematography doesn't break and they walk basically across the pipeline and it gets really close to the two of them. And Daniel Plainview hugs uh, HW right there for a good 10 seconds again. And it solidified that he really loves his son and he doesn't know how to function without family. And that's something that PTA has been struggling with. His entire career. For sure, yeah. And that is the moment that solidified for me that it was a character that was built upon family and had no family. And he tried to grasp at everything he could to find one. I'm, I'm with you. And one thing I think um, about the direction of that scene, I don't think the camera pulls in close, or at least not what I would describe as close, but emotionally we are right next to the two of them. And it draws you into the frame and it draws you closer to them because of what you want. But I love how when he does go to hug him and he says, oh, this does this does me good. Um, it is shot from very far away to start off with. Um, and then they do get closer. But the whole time we are at arm's length from them, just like he sort of is from having a functional family, especially after the accident. Yeah. See, I think, so you Peterson brought up, you know, sort of the, the family, the emotion, that connection thing is the thing that, that he needs that keeps him. But I think that's the thing that he's, I I think if you were to ask Daniel Plainview, he would say that is the weakest part of him. Um, It's, you know, it's, it's sort of, I think the whole relationship with his son or foster son is, is sort of this thing where he let his guard down and he, he let his guard down because it made sense for him from a business standpoint to say, Oh, we're okay. I'm going to take this bastard in a basket and I'm going to use him as, you know, it's like, it's like when you see air conditioners, sales commercials where it's like, ah, oh, look at the little, the pretty little kids, the family, you know, he's using, he is using him as a sales tactic. Um, and he only by accident, 
learns to love him. And then there's this weird thing where almost the, the, the accident where he loses his hearing in a weird way allows Daniel to let go of what I think he would consider to be his weakest attribute. See, I would disagree with that because I think as soon as HW has that accident, within 10 minutes of screen time, his potential brother shows up. And yeah. that's when he pretty quickly and for the first time, Daniel Plainview is making kind of a really dumb decision. He's a really smart, incisive, kind of really brilliant person up until that point. And mm-hmm. he really quickly believes, oh, this is my brother. And he's striving and looking for that connection once again that then turns out that it's not true as well. And then that results in the murder of his potential brother. So it's PTA is kind of constantly giving him family figures that he either cannot keep or are unable to really latch on to. And I think it is that um, betrayal of the family member uh, or the potential brother that drives him to his final place of, uh, of pure walled off, um, whatever you want to call it, just um, sourness or whatever you he's, want to call he's it. guarding himself. He's guarding himself emotionally. Yes, yeah. but but when he gives that person the benefit benefit of his doubt, his recently met brother, the guy wasn't acting like any. He was still acting like himself. He was just taking somebody else's name. Daniel Plainview was able to see the good in him, enjoy being with him, enjoy working with him, trusted him, took him with him, wasn't just using him like uh, he says he was using HW just to get sales. He was he he liked the person, but as soon as he lied to him, it was the last shutting of the door on. New people. I, I think he liked HW as well, though. That was the thing is he was using he was initially using him and then he grew to like him. He he found a way to love. He's almost you know, he, he's almost like a Don Draper in a way um, in, in, on, in that on, sense. On this viewing, I, I wanted to ask, do you think um, do you believe him at the end of the movie when he says it was not his kid? I know at the beginning it shows him. Yeah, no, it's not helped. his kid. He's a bastard in a basket. Definitely. Well, it's 100% not his kid. OK, that's because the father dies in when. I, I, he gets, I saw that at the beginning. Yeah, when the kid gets when HW gets baptized, essentially, or Ash Wednesday, I don't know what that's called, with oil on his forehead. Um, that's that's not plain view because the father hasn't died yet. That's actually the father, and, and the the father gets the thing dropped on him down in the well, right next to him. Yeah. Okay. Because um, I, I I wasn't sure if maybe that was somebody else taking care of his kid while he was working. I assume that that's true at the end. What he told us, or I always did, but this time I, I was wondering, was he just like, you're not my, you're not my child? No, I, I think that's totally, and, and real quick, let's actually, I, I want to back up to the very beginning of this film for, for a second to just applaud the amazing visual storytelling over the first, what, like 15 to 20 minutes of this. And I mean, really throughout the whole thing, there's a lot of long stretches of just silence and visual storytelling up front, but things like that communicating the HW was his adopted son just through visual motifs? Yeah. Is it didn't it's, do it for me? Didn't what? Oh, didn't what? do it for me. First fifteen minutes didn't do it for me. A lot of the long stretches in there felt self indulgent to me. The, which Jake, to me, the first fifteen minutes are are maybe the best part of the film because I think within the first ten minutes of silent, basically silent cinema, you've established that this guy is going to basically go into hell, go into hell on earth, crawl his way out with a broken leg and drag his silver in 
by himself in that hellish landscape. And not to mention Johnny Greenwood's score just. Yeah. I mean. I don't love the score. What? No, the score. Okay. Hold on. Two things. First of all, Jake, have you seen uh, Sunrise Song of Two Humans? No. Okay. Well, then, okay. Then I, because I was going to chastise you for probably hating that movie if you hate the opening of this, because it's, it is on the level of pure cinematic visual storytelling of something like Sunrise. I like, I like visual storytelling. I'm not saying I don't. This just, it really didn't, I didn't enjoy it that much. And I know that this is not a film made to be enjoyed per se, but I, and I appreciate that it is good filmmaking, but I was watching, I was like, okay, I got it. Okay. The, The second thing, Johnny Greenwood's score. Johnny Greenwood's score is so important to this movie working. It's so, especially in that opening, like, I mean, as, as it is a silent film, the score is, is an extra textural piece to it to like, it almost, you know, those landscapes combined with his score makes it feel like Daniel Plainview is off on some alien terrain, unexplored. You know, he's, he is, he is exploring the, the vastness of the West which is, you know, falls into PTA's American exploration, all of that. Uh, but it's it's so complementary to everything that's going on throughout this film. There's two parts of the score. There's the droney part, and there's the, um, I don't know what you would call it, like the or- orchestral, but not really. The staccato beats that really are like Christoph Benderecki. Um, like that's the second part to me. Right. So, yeah. so, some of those... Uh, some of the scenes felt overscored. Some of them, I, I felt the score was more distracting to me. Uh, like I was actively thinking about it and and it wasn't worked in. Uh, whereas okay. something like um, Birdman, which also had a very active score yeah. the entire time. Let's not mention Birdman and seeing Sinners <laughs> is there will be blood. I think this is a much Birdman better film work, than Birdman. But, but, um, but I, I, don't think, I don't think it's the same thing. No, no, no. I'm not trying to say it's the same thing, but I'm saying the use of of really staccato beats and all that stuff yeah. um, lends a lot of energy to a movie that is very fast paced, where when it was used here, there was only one scene that I thought it worked really well in. And I think it's when the well exploded. Yeah. Um, See, I, I think this film's pretty economical up until like the it, it feels very odd still at that that final chapter. Uh, but for as as long as it is, it feels like it moves at a pretty good clip, I think. I think it moves incredibly quickly considering it's two hours and what, 38 minutes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's no, there will, or it's no uh, life and death of Colonel Blimp, but nothing can. Be. <laughs> uh, I, I think the parts in the beginning that are so long, part of the reason I don't appreciate them as much as I wish there was more invested later in the movie. I love watching Daniel Day Lewis act. And while he is a very good silent actor as well, um, when he starts talking, I enjoy the movie much more. Well, and I, I'm hard pressed to disagree, but at the same time, when, he is climbing back down into, I don't know what you call it, the cavern, the well, wherever the mm-hmm. silver is, mm-hmm. and he falls, it breaks his legs. That mm-hmm. guttural sound yeah. he lets out mm-hmm. after that cut is just, I mean, that is un, like it's, it's not something a human would do. I am I'm, I'm with you. I, I I I and I like that part of the movie more, but some of the other really long shots to me. Uh, and I don't mean like a long shot. I mean, long takes to me were like, look, we built this whole entire oil derrick. Look, it, it actually sort of runs. There were, there were parts where that's what I felt like. I'm they, just, 
I'm pulling my hair out right now. <laughs> so you think, I mean, are, are you going to come to my house in the middle of the night and slit my throat? Is <laughs> that what's going to happen? I'm going to slit your throat. Well, what are you talking about? I love that guy's reaction. What are you, what are you talking about? H.M. Tilford. It's, I mean, <laughs> that is, and I've always wondered, because um, it reminds me of that scene, of the um, kind of the baptism scene with Plainview. Mm-hmm. At the very end, I've always wondered what Plainview says to Eli Sunday. Oh, what, I know. When he shakes his hand, it just draws in close. I've always wondered. What did he say? I mean, yeah. I, I've always assumed that it's him basically checking him, basically like almost revealing like, I know you're a bullshitter, like I'm a bullshitter. Like you you can't you can't bullshit me. See, yeah, I was, thought I thought it was him saying, One day I'm gonna murder you and there's <laughs> nothing you can do to stop me. Never come to my bowling alley. Because I think that's the moment he decides I'm gonna murder you when he says you have to say I've abandoned my child. And Dale Day-Lewis looks at him with that stare out of the side of his eye. And that's the moment I think he decides, I'm going to kill you. Because right before we transition to the 20-year jump, mm-hmm. yeah, the second to last thing we see is Plainview watching Eli get on a train that says, I'm going on my pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. when he says, I've missed my chance. I missed my yeah. chance to kill him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he comes back into his life 20 years later. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I love that we can't hear what he says um, because you have to fill in those blanks. I think that's a, a great decision from P.T. Anderson. Not no, to agree. show us, not to tell us, and not to pull in on that. That's a moment where we're part of the congregation. We saw it. We are neither of the characters. But you know he said something intense to him. You can sort of see it on his face. <sighs> yeah. What do you guys think of the general chess match between – Eli and Daniel. Well, I think from the first second he meets Eli, he knows that he's a huckster. He knows he's a complete fabrication. Yeah. And, you know, for the most part, Daniel Plainview is not really like an illegitimate businessman. He runs his practices pretty well. He really stands up to a lot of his promises. And unlike Eli, he is – kind of a man of his word and Eli's just a complete fabrication. I mean, that scene where he's casting the devil, you know, out of the woman's arthritic yeah. hands. Yeah. You know, that's the moment when you're just watching plain view, watch him and thinking, I'm going to eat this guy alive. That's one hell of a show. <laughs> well, but, and, and they're, they're sort of doing like, whereas Daniel Plainview is capitalism as in, in personified form, uh, then Eli Sunday is religion in personified form. And obviously that's very reduction. You know, we're, we're reducing a lot there, but this particular form of religion in, I, I think, I think that's fair. I think that's what PT Anderson's doing. And I think that's yeah. part of uh, maybe the dislike I had about it, especially, you know, 10 years ago when I watched it, it is, it is so an- antithetical uh, to the things I think about those two subjects that it, it, it distances me from my appreciation of the film. And I'll admit that. But I think, okay, can I ask you this? Like it's, I I can understand like having, so having antithetical worldview of what he's saying, what he's selling you. But at the same time, 
I, I think his craft is really good here also. Like it's, it's much better than like a crash, uh, that, that came out a couple years earlier where it's doing the same sort of like, okay, this person is racism. This person is prejudice in another way. This person, person is sexism. And it's just, that's all it is. Like he finds a way to both personify these, these elements, but then also make them these characters, real characters beyond that. Chris, I, I'm not arguing, and I would I would probably go as far as to say this is a great film. Okay, you just okay. you just don't like the taste. There, there, yeah. I I, I appreciate the film. I, it is not one that I'm ever seeking to watch. the The thing I like the most about it is watching Daniel Day Lewis act, and I think he does phenomenal with it. And well, I wonder what this film would have been like with someone else, and if I would have that same appreciation. He is the thing that takes it over the top and covers the things that I don't like as much about it, but it is clear that the director has a, a, a very great intent and ability and everything else. It's, it's a good, it's a really good movie. Well, I mean, so to play, you know, casting director for a second, mm -hmm. if you're in 2006 casting this movie, you're going to cast Philip Summer Hoffman because that's who he's worked with in every film almost. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Led there will be blood. It'd be a very different plain view, but mm -hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing it. No, I wouldn't mind either. But he would feel he would feel more like a charlatan as well. I don't think he could have brought the intensity that Daniel Day Lewis. I don't think he could have brought the physicality. Right. Yeah. I think just looking at Daniel Day Lewis and hearing him act, you know, I mean, you believe him when he says he he's a believes in plain talking, and all. you believe him. He just is. He looks like a, a, a man from that time should look like you. Well, and he also him. looks like he, because he does. You see him in the oil wells doing the work, mm -hmm. whereas I don't think you'd be able to see, see Hoffman do that. I think that's part of the thing that is really incredible about the performance is that it's not just the speaking or the talking. It's totally the physicality. I mean, when when he's sitting in that uh, av after he's pulled himself out of the mine and he's just sitting there on the floor, there's something to just the physicality of him sitting there wounded, but still a hulking man who like you totally buy that. Like this guy pulled himself out and probably crawled who knows how many miles yeah. to to mm -hmm. <laughs> sell his silver Don't and make his profit. silver. Yeah, that's reason. <laughs> Is is this the greatest performance of our generation? I I would think yes. I don't think anything that I can think of comes close. Chris, do you, I don't have another answer. This this is probably the one I would go with. You have anything, Chris? Not not off the top of my head. I mean, really, I'm just thinking like, what other Daniel Day Lewis performances are there to go <laughs> up against it? Honestly, yeah. I, I mean, he. I, I would say that he is a uh, a whole notch ahead of all the other actors. Well, right and, and I think he is the he is the best of like what method can give you mm -hmm. versus like there are there are folks out there who are doing method stuff where it doesn't really pay off in the same way. Um, but then it goes back to the the question that we had up at the top before the review of but at what cost? <laughs> well, yeah. well, with as good as this performance is, let me ask you, uh, did you like Paul Dano's Paul Dano's performance? I didn't like it that much the first time. Um, it has grown on me every time since. And that might be a little bit because Dano's actually become a better actor. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think I didn't give him enough credit initially. Well, I think that it's certainly grown on me too. And I think that, you know, 
10 years ago when I saw it. He was that emo kid from Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, mm-hmm. Little Miss Sunshine. Yep. And immediately that's the first thing I thought of because he hadn't really been anything other than that. And yeah. I just immediately started thinking, okay, well, you're that emo kid. And that's all I brought to the performance. Whereas now I think he's doing a lot of really interesting things. And he's somebody who is, I mean, he really has just gotten better and better and better with age. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think this was that really pivotal climax. And look, PTA's turned out career best performances from, I, let's see, Joaquin Phoenix, you know, Julian Moore. I mean, you can list any number of people he's given career best performances to. And I think this is probably Dano's best role. And I think Daniel Day-Lewis's best role as well. So Interesting. Let me ask you a question about Dano's performance. A couple things. Um, some of them are choices about the movie. Some of them are his performance. One, do you think he sells the the religious prophet aspect? Do you think that works? I think it works for what he needs to be, like what he needs to be to the town of what little Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I don't think like, and maybe that's honestly why you know, close to twenty years down the road, when he comes to Daniel Plainview and he is in a really bad situation, that that could be why he's gotten himself in a really bad situation because he's not necessarily the type of guy who can go out and then start like he had his whole plan for doing uh, evangelism on the radio, which was a, you know, a real thing that was going, I don't know if you guys have seen nuts, uh, but -hmm. that's, that's sort of what I imagine him, uh, him doing. And it's to me this time around felt pretty clear that that was what his downfall was like. He's, he reached beyond his abilities as a huckster. He's not a good enough charlatan to be able to pull off the trick to people who actually understand what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, to Dale, I mean, Dale Day Lewis or Dale Plainview understands from Jump Street, you are a complete fraud. And that is, I think, really inherent in both performances. And, you know, I mean, but other than those two, I think you have a lot of really interesting supporting work going on, you know, from Kieran Hines and Dylan Fraser is the young HW. And um, I think the, Person who plays HW in that one pivotal scene uh, at the end is very, very good. Yeah. And I think it's just one of those movies that I think the more times you watch it, the richer it gets. And the more you start understanding that PTA is really dealing with American individualism in a way that no other director has really been able to even grasp or grab by the bullhorns and wrangle. Because it's such a large, sprawling experiment that is America that we are unable to truly understand. And PTA can grasp it in a way that no one else can. I, I think you're absolutely right. Like this, for me, what it comes down to is what I look for in a great movie, like a a at the, the very top cream of the crop sort of film, is a film that I can revisit again and again and again. And I'm still getting new information. I'm still experiencing new things. And this is definitely one of those films for me. I've probably seen this 15 times. Wow. That's, that's far more. I, I've probably seen it five. And that's still like, that's, that's a lot of time to dedicate to such a like heavy. I mean, that's the other thing is this is a really, it's a heavy film. Like I, as much as I enjoy it, I need some time to sort of unwind when I get to the end of it. Um, but you bring up to, to transition here, you bring up, you know, PT Anderson, his exploration of, uh, of America, of sort of what kind of defining what America is. He is, he's one of those, you know, when you think, or at least when I think American filmmaker, there's, 
not a ton of the, the, that I think stand out as like exemplifying exactly what American filmmaking and American independent filmmaking is. He's, he's right up there. One of the others for me, I mean, probably the, the first that I think of is the Coen brothers. Hmm. Uh, are you agreeing or disagreeing with me here? Jake? No, I agree. I just okay. wonder where this is going. Are we about to talk about another movie? What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir, the most you ever lost on a coin toss. I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. It wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. All right. Heads in. Well done. Don't put it in your pocket, sir. Don't put it in your pocket. It's your lucky quarter. Where do you want me to put it? Anywhere not in your pocket. Or it'll get mixed in with the others and become just a coin. Which it is. All right, Jake. So Peterson and I attempted to pull you over. Too. You got me to admit it was a great film. So feel that as a victory. That's it's it's a minor minor victory, but uh you know, we started out with with Peterson kind of talking about why he loves There Will Be Blood so much. Uh so I figure we'll turn it over to you to to kick this off. Why why do you think No Country for Old Men is not only the best of these two films, but I assume the best of 2007. Is that is that uh, correct? I really like Hot Fuzz, but this is this is the this is the best film from 2007, in my opinion. Okay, um, why is that? And just to start off with, I, I want to frame it this way: I think the Coen Brothers, like you hinted at, are probably the the best uh, American directors of our generation. That's that's what I'll throw out there. We can discuss that if you want. I also think this is their best film, and I know that there's an argument for Fargo that some would make, and some would say maybe Big Lebowski. Chris, no, I think I, I, I would. Well, I, I would say Fargo is the safe choice, mm-hmm. and it's it's a really good movie. It's a it's and it's actually sort of a low key good movie. Um, but for me, it's Raising Arizona, and that's more that it is my favorite film. Um, I do think this is a better, masterful technical achievement in cinematic storytelling. Uh, but Raising Arizona, I could watch any day of the week. And uh, it's it's so good. I know that um, I know that we just talked about all the things, religions and capitalism and all that stuff that is addressed by There Will Be Blood. I want to pitch No Country for Old Men as talking about a timeless struggle that we are we that everyone has always dealt with and everyone always will deal with, which is understanding the chaos in our world. As you as you get older, you I think you feel like you understand the world better, only to be proven that there are things that you could not fathom, and that yeah, is like such Snapchat. An, 
like Snapchat. Yeah. This is about not understanding Snapchat, start to finish. Uh, somehow there's stories. I don't know how those work. So I think the thing with this movie is that it is a timeless statement that I have not seen any other movie address that I can think of, at least not a, a movie that isn't like a, a, a fish out of water comedy or something like that. Ikiru? Yeah, I think Ikiru is the closest asking the same questions. And honestly, I if I was going to say Ikiru to New Country Real Men, that's a, that's a, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's, <laughs> it's I, I think I think they, they deal in different scopes though. I think Akiru mm-hmm. is very micro and no country the way that it's framing, it's very macro. You know, it's it's sort of showing us not the entire scope, but multiple levels within the scope. I mean, e- even in the way that it's framing, uh, where you don't really realize that um Ed Tom is the main character the first time around until like what the last 10 minutes and and even then I know a bunch of people who left this movie going what the hell did I just see why did it end like that I don't get it oh you mean the way that you were with the departed <laughs> let's save that one for another day how about that okay fine but I, I know a lot of people who left it and and were like what what was that what, yeah, what, what did happened? I just see I, I love that it ends and goes to black and you're forced to contemplate what went on. And then, you know, the only thing that you have there, what ticking of a clock. I remember that ending being really challenging for a lot of people. And it wasn't the kind of ending that people were expecting. They're expecting either it's Llewellyn Moss to win the day or it's Ed Tom Bell to win the day, but it's good to triumph. And you know what? Good doesn't triumph in the real world. It's a neck and neck battle. Most of the time where you don't really know who's going to win. And that's what yeah. the country old men does so well. And from a technical mastery point, I think I really think the film is legitimately a perfect film. I don't know an extraneous edit. I don't know an extraneous second to the film. There's not an extraneous sound edit. Kind of one of the moments that caught me upon rewatch this time that I'd never noticed was the moment when very beginning when Anton Chigurh kills the deputy in that station. And mm-hmm. it's that harsh struggle and his legs are flailing about. Mm-hmm. And the next little cut, it's that overhead as he's walking out, leaving uh, after he's washed the blood off the cuffs. Mm-hmm. And he's leaving and there's the scuffed up yeah. floor. floor I yeah. never noticed that before. But I thought they're paying attention to the exact – harshness of what it would mean to kill somebody like that. Well, and let me ask this. Have either of you read the novel, the Cormac McCarthy I, I novel? Have not. Space uh, yes, I have. I, I'm, okay. I really love it. Cormac McCarthy to me, I think he is my favorite living author and he hadn't written anything in nine, ten, ten years or so since The Road. So did the story play in the same ideas and same themes or how much of it is original? That's why I bring it up. Like I, I read the probably, it was long after I'd seen the film. It was probably four or five years ago, I read it like on a beach in an afternoon um, because, you know, Cormac McCarthy is generally a pretty quick read, just the way that those staccato lines, the way that he writes dialogue, all of that. Not everything though. Blood Meridian, Sutre, those are both dense, dense novels. Okay. I, I have not, I have not ventured in into those, uh, but I was amazed at how much of what they put up on screen really complements the prose of Cormac McCarthy. And it's, it's sort of a, it's, it's in a way, it's almost feels like a, you're reading a screenplay, 
um, in the, in the way that he, he poses things, but then they also bring the cinematic element to mm-hmm. it. So it's a, it's the perfect complimentary handshake to the way that he tells his story in the novel and in the way that they, uh, they put it up on screen. I think lesser directors wouldn't know what to do with the material. One way I've explained this to people before is this is not a novel. This movie is not a novel. This movie is a short story. And novels serve a different purpose in my mind, usually than short stories. Short stories are more, um, I, I almost like short stories better. And it's not just because I have a five second long attention span, but I, I like how they can build a limited world to prove um, or explore very dense um, ideas and themes. And they also generally leave an ellipses at the mm-hmm. end where it right. keeps. And, and I'm, I'm sort of the same way, Jake. I, I love picking up, you know, a short story volume um, mm-hmm. to read. But honestly, I think short stories can be more challenging because with a novel, you kind of get in the, the pace mm-hmm. and the flow of uh, living with the characters versus a short story. By the time you figure out how everyone moves, you've reached the end. And, you've well, and short stories anyway. can throw things away. They can just throw characters away. And it, yeah. it, it's not a huge investment. It's fine. Well, and I certainly think that short stories translate to the screen better because mm-hmm. when you have a 300-page novel, it's just there's too much happening and you can't get in the internal lives of the character as much as a novel. Whereas if you have a 20-page short story, you're going to be able to get in the heads of the characters a lot, just like the short story. Peterson, you you were saying you know it's, it's a technically perfect film. Um, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I think – for me, the thing that they really nail here, which makes it technically their best, while not my favorite, technically their best film they've ever made, is the the way that they handle pace, the way that they handle tone, um, the way that they handle basically all of the temporal movement, all of the things that are um, the 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 pieces to cinema the the editing of it the sound of it the uh way or the lack of sound as as a lot of this is um they understand how to make it ebb and flow and go up and down and sort of make a it's it's never sitting on the same note for too long and anytime it it is like like that probably my favorite scene in the entire film is Shigur and Llewellyn in that hotel in just the silence. No, mm-hmm. My favorite moment of that scene is when he, his feet show up at the door. Llewellyn has the slight little click of the cock of the gun. Uh-huh. And then, uh, Shigur walks away, unscrews the light bulb and you hear yeah. the faintest little hint of a light bulb unscrewing. And yeah. he comes back and you see the look on Josh Brolin's face. It's like, what, what's happening? And and then he and then and then you get a beat and he's hitting the chest. Yeah, and yeah. it's just it's just I mean it's people I mean it really is it's the Coen brothers at the top of their game understanding the rhythms of editing like no other people today. I think that they are the best editors working on yeah. the planet. Probably. You, you mean I'm, Roderick James? Yeah, Roderick James. Yeah, Roderick James is <laughs> he does phenomenal work, and he's apparently 130 years old. Or, or to she? I don't know if it's a she. No, I think they've said it, it's a he, but they they've said he's like well over 100 years old at this point. Ooh, okay. So he's <laughs> you know such such an Aryan, just 115 yeah. years old. Yeah, out yeah. This he just had his 111st birthday. But but that that whole little sequence, which is probably what 10 minutes or less. 
Oh, um, probably less than that. Probably six, maybe. Yeah. yeah, it's it is a it is a short film in itself, and it's a horror film. That's what I was going to say. I think Shigor is best compared to The Shape to Michael Myers. Yeah, yeah he, absolutely. He, he doesn't move fast. Really, he just he's coming. He's going to kill you. He's he's a constant human. force. Well, yeah. particularly in that scene, there's a moment when. It's when Llewellyn's hiding behind the car and you just look and it's just this mass of a body. You can't mm-hmm. see anything about it other than the fact that he's got maybe dark hair and dark clothes on. And you're like, oh, that guy's just – he's a mass of a human being. He's not, there's nothing to him other than it, you know the blackness. Well, and, and that, that moment when – that ends the scene where he slowly creeps up to him with the shotgun and you don't get to see Shiger, but you – you get the idea that he gets a glimpse of him, but he gets away. And there's that, that's another boogeyman quality to it where like in practical terms, he probably has the jump on him. He could kill him there, mm-hmm. but Shigur is Shigur. And you can tell that he's wounded and you can tell that he's just gotten away, but it's, it's enough to like, it, it puts you in a weird headspace, And that's, that's what they, and the, for that to be butted up against all of this other stuff they've got going on. Um, it's, it's a real risk to, to play that scene that way, but it is exactly how that scene needed to be played out. And you talk about risk and I find that the Coens in this film are the most confident they ever are. They're always very confident directors, but they make choices that I don't think other directors would be brave enough to make, especially in a film like this. Yeah. I mean, because they know exactly the story that they're telling. They know the art of cinema to the fact, to the, to the point that they know what they can do and what audiences will tolerate and what it's going to do to audiences as far as disorienting you because he shouldn't he shouldn't be able to get away that fast or or just what they choose to show and what they choose not to show uh like when he's running out of that hotel room uh when Ellen actually gets shot in mm-hmm. the side i don't think we see shigor shoot him at all it comes he didn't complete- shoot him it, it's the um it's the lock hits him is is so, that what I, I so thought the, when he was running through that alley he he gets hit maybe you hear you hear a couple of and and you see kind of scatter on the ground um I mean I guess I guess you could argue that it's either I'd always assume that he he just got a little bit of him I mean because he's he's shooting him with a shotgun a True. silent shotgun <laughs> um I just assume that it's just a little bit of that that shot that that comes off into his side um, he's ter- he's Sh- Shigor's terrifying but you I mean you bring up sort of the 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 intelligence of of the way that they they confidently put everything together. I think I think that's there from the very beginning as well. When you've got Ed Tom narrating, and you've got a completely different story going on in front of you, and first time viewer, you don't realize that these are incongruous things. Like conventional storytelling would be. The guy who's narrating, you're going to dovetail in with whatever you're seeing. Instead, yeah, he's going de- to be the detective who drives up in a second with a newspaper and goes into yeah, the office. Instead, yeah. they are literally telling you two stories at once. Mm-hmm. And that takes it from being starting with voiceover, which is one of the laziest things you can possibly do, to starting with dissonance, which engages you more. Because now it's like, oh, well, this isn't the same thing. What? How, how are these two things related? And then instantly, like, I'm sucked in and trying to figure out the pieces and fit, fit them together. Well, it's I think brilliant. I think what's so incredible about that opening is that is as he's going through the narration, you start with darkness and you start with zero uh, signs of life. 
and then you slowly start to piece together life as the day comes forward. And it's asking the question, how does how do you govern out here? How is there law in this land? There can't be. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the same question that uh, the 2006 film The Proposition has is, you know, how do you govern a land that is ungovernable? You know, how do yeah. you start drawing and demarcating lines of, you know, establishment? You know, this is your land. This is my land. And it's asking that question of what is life and what is society when this is how we live and exist? Right. I, I, and it's, it is asking how to govern this land, but it is, you end up realizing the film is so much bigger and it's asking about humanity in general. How, how do you manage chaos? How do you manage evil? How do you manage fate? And fate, you yeah. Know? The coin don't have no say. That moment, in that moment, you know, you know, you think Kelly McDonald is, you know, she's an Irish actress and yeah. I think she does, a, I think she's really good. And that moment, I love that moment between her and Llewellyn on the couch when mm-hmm. they're just mm-hmm. sitting there. And it's a moment that, you know, he does sound a little bit like a rube and then you find out, well, you know, he genuinely loves her, I think. Oh no, absolutely. They, they, that is, you were seeing directly into the, their relationship. It is not a, it's not a adversarial sort of thing there. That is, that is the way that they communicate with each other for sure. Well, in that moment when Llewellyn goes back, you know, that's the moment where he could just walk away mm-hmm. theoretically. And then, you know, he didn't know about the uh, tracking device, but he could walk away, but he decides, I personally think, I think he goes back to give, um, the Mexican in the car, he goes back to give him water. Right. Yeah. He goes back to save his life. And, and then the second when he looks up and he sees the car pulled next to his, you know, you know, a couple hundred yards away, that's the moment where he thinks, well, okay, what did I just get myself into? And that's when he really realizes what he's just stepped into. Well, and he's, he is a man who is in over his head. I mean, he is, he is well-trained. He did some time in Nam. He's, I mean, if anyone is going to survive this, he is, I think. But still, he he is no match. Don't for- the Coens hate, love working with, but hate a person who's in over their head? They, in in movie after movie, they show someone's plans unraveling. Well, that's, yeah, is- that's always, I mean, and it's always, it generally always revolves around money as well. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a story of American life, though? That's the story of America, is being in over your head you know, you know, from the very get-go, starting a country on scraps and then founding a government and then to where we are now, you know, trying to make it in lower to middle-class America to middle to upper-class, whatever you are, it's, you know, there's never a stop. There's never a moment where you say, okay, well, that's where I want to be. It's yeah. always being in over your head because you don't have what the person next to you has or you don't have the person in front of you has. It's not ever... A stop point. Chris asked me the other day, he said, if you think P.T. Anderson's a, a pessimist, well, how would you describe the Coen brothers? And I thought about it and thought about it, and I couldn't come up with a word, but the best I could come up with was uh, feudalist. I don't think that's a word, but I, th- I think they think everything Feudalism. is futile. Yeah. Feudalism. Fe- um, futilitarian is the, uh, the word I offered up. <laughs> I, I, I like that one. Uh, but you see so many people in their films try and strive and fail and are just beaten down by life. I don't know that a winner really comes out of any of their films. Well, think of Serious Man, where that ends. It ends with, mm-hmm. so Larry Gopnik gets the call from his doctor that says, well, you know, you've got to come in. Basically saying, yeah. you're 
you know, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? The tornado happens. And mm-hmm. it's just chance upon chance. And it adds up to this moment where he is in zero control of his life, just like Llewellyn, just like Ed Tom, who is at the literally Ed Tom's at the end of his rope. He has no idea what to do. And that moment when Garrett Dillahunt starts laughing and Ed Tom looks at him for a second and he says, huh, sometimes I laugh. It's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and there's also something about Ed Tom being he he is the man with the most experience in, in any situation he is in. But he's he's sort of at a place where he's become so old that there's people who maybe don't want to take his advice anymore, don't want to explore what he has to offer. I mean, he's he has reached the point where he is obsolete, even if he has more to offer. Well, and I, I love that in that scene, they talk about someone in, you know, his was it his uncle or his dad or whoever who who faced that stuff in the past, stuff that you couldn't understand. The I think for him, it was the Indians who came in. And shot him on his porch. His his grandfather, I think, was shot. Yeah, shot on his porch, and he said, "You know, aunt or grandmother, or whatever, didn't realize it, but he knew the score all along." I love that. At first, it presents it as uh, that the other sheriff that he talks to, I guess the one from uh, uh, Del Rio or Del Rio, oh, yeah, yeah, um, is like, "Look, these kids with the bones in their nose and the green hair. It's just society's going down. But this guy ain't got nothing to do with this. It's just evil." Um, and then he learns that it's something they've been fighting forever. It's not this new thing. It's not green hair and no yes or no sir kind of thing. It's something that old men have always had to deal with. It's the changing of, and the inability to keep up with with where things are going because that's that's the cycle. Yeah, that and that I think that scene is one of the key scenes. And you know, it may be a little over explanatory when he's saying, you know, it's the dismal tide. It, um, mm-hmm. you know, these the kids with the bones in their noses and. Um, it is a little bit over-explanatory, but it is the moment where Ed Tom, he says, you know, what happened to you? Well, how does a guy go back to the scene of the crime? And then where does Ed Tom go? And he goes back to the scene of the crime where Anton Chigurh is. And this is where you realize 100% that Anton Chigurh has a code and has a st- set of ethics he lives by. Because he doesn't kill Ed Tom at that moment because Ed Tom – hasn't entered into the agreement with him, essentially. Mm-hmm. I think you realize that earlier on with uh, what Carson Wells, when they're talking, I think it's just before uh, he kills Carson, but uh, there's there's a little bit of talk about rules and about how basically he's taunting Carson, telling him that like your rules don't matter because they got you here. Uh, basically <laughs> saying like, my rules are better and I am, you know, I am the prime predator of, of all predators. Um, I think it's, it's pretty clear early on that, um, or at least even before that, that he, he's clearly operating under, he's not, he's not exactly the shape or Michael Myers. He's operating, he is operating under some sort of, uh, system of rules. I think in the coin toss scene is where you first see it, but then I think that's the scene with Ed Tom where he really, you really see that he's choosing to live by it where it's cause you know, he has no reason to kill the guy. Other than maybe, oh, this guy from Dallas or wherever he said he was from um, was there. But that scene, which I think to me may be the best scene in the movie, um, that that coin toss scene with the guy at the store. Mm-hmm. And he says, yeah. you know, you've been putting it up your whole life and you didn't even know it. And that whole scene is just incredible because it's dealing with the subject matter of fate and really, I mean, feudalism and fatalism all at once, you know. He says, where are you from? 
He goes, well, you know, I'm here. He goes, no, where are you originally from? Yeah. And it's, does it yeah. even matter? What, what, what's the point? But he's, he's also trying to make that guy sort of reassess his entire life. He's trying to make him consider the things that it seems like he's considering all the time. Like what brings us here? What funnels us down to where we are? All the choices that we make lead us to this point. And he, he's sort of like, I think if, if you were to get inside his head, he's constantly looking at these idiots in society who are just in, in chaos, sort of going along with what they're doing and not even considering it. Well, and look what they he carries. No he carries a, a tool that's used to slaughter cattle, you know, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and that's kind of the opinion he has. He, he is essentially death carrying a scythe. Yeah. That's, that's what he is. And, and in general, I mean, there's a few innocent bystanders that he kills, but even those are people who he needs, he needs to change vehicles. And so it's like, well, Mm -hmm. it's the luck of the draw. It's the coin toss that they happen to be the one that the guy with the chickens happened to be the guy that showed up. And Mm -hmm. so he's going to go. But beyond that, he doesn't kill. He's not just indiscriminately killing other than that crow. He tries to shoot going across the bridge, (laughs) Um, which I don't know what that was about. Maybe superstition. Um, but other than that, he's not just indiscriminately killing. He's killing the Mexicans who are dope runners. He's killing Carson Wells, who is, you know, a mercenary sort of figure like himself. Um, he's killing more or less bad guys. Well, and I think one thing that's great is that moment between Garrett Dillahunt and Ed Tom Bell in the diner when he starts saying, well, you know, there was no bullet, uh, no bullet found. He said, well, that didn't make any sense. He goes, there's mm-hmm. a bullet Wound in the front, no exit wound. So where is he? He digged around with his uh, a knife and pulled it out. Oh, and, sheriff! I don't want to think about that. And, he, and then <laughs> you see, time of the year, pushes his food away, and it's it's that question of you know, Ed Thompson. Well, I haven't seen this before. Now, this is mm-hmm. something I don't understand. I'm entering a world that I don't know, and how you know, which is why he retires. But at the end of the day, that ending scene shows you. You can't retire or can't stop thinking about the coming tide. You can't stop thinking about the future and what it means and, you know, either the evil or the goodness it's going to take over. And the thing I love about Ed Tom, Ed Tom has all the pieces to the puzzle. He, he knows that a thing exists to kill cattle. He knows this person has a bullet wound in the front of the head and no exit wound. He has everything he needs to piece it together and he can't do it. Because he can't fathom it. Yeah. We we see it all on film. We see Ed Tom acknowledge all of it. And he, you think, oh, he's going to get to the end of it. And he's going to be like every detective. He He's going to have a, a Llewellyn moment. He's going to wake up in the middle of the night and he's going to go, oh, I got it. And, and, and start piecing it all together and say, oh, that call we got at the beginning of the movie from the guy who arrested him, we'll use that and piece it together because it's all there. It's on screen and it does not happen. He, he gives up. Even the story that he tells Carla Jean about the the cattle, mm-hmm. not cattle prod, but the the the, the thing that that she is using. Steer. Yeah, it's it's a that that entire story is a parable mm-hmm. because when Carla Jean talks to him on the phone and asks, you know, is that story a true story? He doesn't even realize what she's talking about initially. Charlie Walzer. Well, who's it's that? true that it was a story. Yeah, well, it's true in the sense that it was a story. So, I mean, it's it's clearly on his mind in at least a subconscious level, but he's just not he's not interacting with it on in in, in the same in the active plane and. 
so I, I don't know. It's, it, I mean, I guess the thing about this movie to me is it's, it's every Coen brothers movie. You know, I mentioned that with PT Anderson, mm-hmm. I kind of have to see it the second time to really get it. I'm the same way with Coen brothers mm-hmm. very much. So, and with this one, not just because, uh, I missed the first time Shigur kills anyone with, with the, uh, little cattle pneumatic doodad. Um, oh, that, that almost made the <laughs> film better. What Chris is talking about, we saw like an advanced screening of this movie, uh, and the projector was screwed up and everything was stretched to oh, it wasn't know. it wasn't in it was in a spherical uh uh-huh. projection instead of an anamorphic and so everything was tall <laughs> really, and then when really they, tall and cropped and then when they went to change it to the anamorphic it went black but the sound was still going and you just hear the and you hear the guy fall yeah it was absolutely terrifying and then it comes back and there's a dead guy i would i would call this a perfect movie if i hadn't seen the first 10 minutes screwed up and it made it even better (laughs) i I can't blame someone for not stretching it but it works you know one thing that moment makes me think about is the ending conversation between his uncle or you know brother whoever it is when he says, you know, you've got to choose to be a part of this world, which is the narration at the beginning. And his uncle or brother, whoever it is, chooses not to be a part of the world. Yeah. And he makes coffee once a week. And um, that to me is the moment where you realize, well, you know, there is a sacrifice to be part of this world. There's a sacrifice that Ed Tom is making to be with people and be with his wife or be, you know, essentially have his job that his brother or uncle hadn't done. Um I mean, that's to me the moment where everything kind of crystallizes in that conversation that maybe didn't the first time I saw it. Um, but I, you know, I've probably seen, you know, like they really blood. I've probably seen this movie 15 times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Cause it's, I mean, it is heavy as it is. It's, it's really, it, it kind of is an easy wash considering it's so dark and bleak and nihilistic. Do you think the Coens were drawn towards it? Because they liked the aspect of, um, you know, people trying to get money and losing it and all that stuff that they normally like. Or do you think they felt uh, akin to Shigor in the way that they insert chance into their scripts and the way they their characters are killed off by by chance, by randomness, by fate? I think the source material is right up their alley. I mean, I think that's the that that's the 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 part at Jump Street. What what I was getting at earlier is like this is this is like all of their movies, one that it reads a, a different way the second time and basically every subsequent time, because you don't, you don't know what Ed Tom's talking about up front. Um, but it's, it, so it, it, it totally encapsulates everything that they've been doing since the beginning. I mean, since, since blood simple and most movies, I mean, there's, there's a few plays. I, I, I wouldn't say maybe intolerable, intolerable cruelty or, or the lady killers gets so far into these things, but in general, this is, the Coen brothers in a nutshell, I would say this film and a serious man are the two that for me, if you were to say, tell me what the Coen brothers are about, those are the two films I would present. And that tells you everything you need to know. The thing I'm most impressed about the Coen brothers is they could command the biggest budgets if they wanted, but they choose to tell these small stories. They choose to, to keep these contained, realistic, small movies I, I'm just so imp- impressed with that. They do what they do best and they continue to do it. Well, and this, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about they embody American cinema for me is they, they have been making the movies they want to be making since the early eighties and they continue to, mm-hmm. uh, 
and and that comes at a price in a lot of ways. What do you think? Do you guys? Do either of you know what the budget of this movie was? I do not. I'm going to say thirty million. Okay, and what do you think the budget of uh, There Will Be Blood was? Probably thirty, maybe forty, maybe twenty. Oh, I'm I'm <clears throat> way different on those. I think that this film. I think I think No Country's probably in the twenty range, fifteen to twenty. I don't know how much they paid the actors, but I don't know how much there could have been. I feel like no budget with some of the effects that it has, some of the stuff they had to build for it. And some of it looks like it was shot on location and possibly outside uh, <laughs> of the, the 30 mile zone. Uh, then. Okay. So 15 to 20. On, <laughs> and, 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 and for no country, I'm, I'm going 65. Okay. Wow. And the, I mean, you gotta, you gotta say these, these are uh, $2,007. Uh, but I, both of these have rough estimate, same price tag, $25 million. Are you serious? I'm serious. I mean, you got to think this is, this is Miramax. This is Paramount Vantage. So this is, you know, back when you had Paramount Vantage focus features, those sort of like little boutiques within the, 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 the bigger studios that were really turning stuff out. I'm impressed with PT. I'm impressed with PT Anderson. He made a period film that looks really, really good. They used every dollar that they had and put it up on screen in both mm-hmm. of these films. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, and both are, both are period films. Both are, I mean, I know you've got a Hardee's in the background and I know that the, the what the beef jerky in the, the convenience store shouldn't be there. And there's those little things. And there's a modern shell station. You got, yeah. That that are, those are the the only literally the only flaws I can find in this whole in that whole movie. Yeah, and I, it doesn't I, I love No Country with all my heart. I don't even think those are flaws because I, I love that moment when Anton Chigurh in the gas station drops the the peanut wrapper or whatever it is, and he just drops mm-hmm. it on the counter, and oh we linger gosh. on it for probably three to four seconds, and you see it start to unspool, and it's the Coens having fun and saying, "Well, we're releasing the tension a little bit." In the middle of a scene that is filled yeah. with tension, yeah, and and the sound effect there, and the oh my gosh, it's it's creepy, it's it's creepy, and it's beautiful. It's not the only scene in the film that has any score. You know, I was I was trying to think of what uh, because it's what Carter Burwell did did the score here, but I probably so because I mean it's pretty much silent. It's pretty much silent throughout other than that, the, 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 I wish, honestly, I wish there was no music under the, uh, the credits at all. Yeah. You see where I stand on this movie, Chris. I think it's basically perfect. Other, other than, other than the beef jerky. It, it's the Hardee's that does it for me. <laughs> it, that's the Hardee's is the thing that I noticed the first time around. And I noticed it again this time. I think we should take a moment to lament the fact that I don't know if either of these movies could be made today in the, in the cinematic climate that we have right now. There's not a whole lot of places where you can get the, I mean, I don't know what the inflation would be. Let's say $30 million to make either of these movies. Well, what's the Phantom Third cost? That That's a good, well, and I guess, you know, Hail Caesar is probably around the same. Um, and, and then maybe maybe it's that these are the only types of people who are able to make this this sort of money. I mean, or movies at this sort of budget. I mean, you look at something like The Nice Guys last year. And that was that was a rarity. That was a weird what? It was probably mm-hmm. thirty five million, and it didn't. Yeah. It unfortunately didn't bank. But like studios, they aren't they aren't making this sort of thing. They're making the ten fifteen million dollar films, the the real indies, and they're making the you know hundred plus. La La Land was a thirty million dollar movie. So outlier, uh, outlier. I mean, yeah, that's an outlier though. <laughs> look at Moonlight. I mean, yeah. that movie what, was two two million. Yeah, two and a half, something like that. Two and a half. Yeah. Un- 
unbelievable. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's just using every resource they have. I think, I think there is a dearth of this sort of, this sort of movie. And they were probably, you know, they were more prevalent in like the nineties when like the whole indie thing was, was coming up and hadn't been set up as like the low tier. I mean, now anymore, they're kind of looking at it as, you know, stepping stones. I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm sort of getting into a get off my lawn sort of now I'm getting no, I'm old. I'm with you. There's a, there's a ton of fives. There's some tens, there's few thirties, and then you hit 75 and up and you got a ton. But I'm pretty yeah. sure. I'm pretty sure th- that Creed was a $40 million film. Really? In Creed. Really? Yeah. I think if I can remember correctly, you know, Creed was a $40 million picture and that's, you know, Michael B. Jordan starring in it, you know, obviously Sly's in it, but uh, for the most part, I mean, there's really no big stars in it. But but it had a franchise. It had a franchise. It had a franchise, but that's somebody saying, you know, Hey, we'll give Michael or sorry. um, We'll give Ryan Coogler the keys to the kingdom on this thing. $40 million have at it. And that thing probably made, all the money. I mean, all of it. Well, and but that that one's less as as Jake's saying. That one's less of a risk because it's a franchise. True. Good comparison. How about Hidden Figures at twenty five million? Yeah, but to Chris's point, I mean, really, I mean, when you look at it, the twenty to fifty million dollar picture, it's pretty much gone. And yeah. I mean, looking in today's look at look at this uh, winter, what's coming out of that price range? I mean, I don't know what the post cost, but something tells me the post. You have Meryl Streep. Bob Odenkirk, Tom Hanks, like there's laundry list of stars in that thing. Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg. That thing's <laughs> got to be at least 70. Um, what, did, what did Wonder cost? What, <laughs> that fantasy movie league asshole. Right there. <laughs> Probably 15 million if I had to guess. Okay. What do you, what do you think it costs, Peterson? Uh, we got Julia Roberts, Owen Wilson, uh, and then Jacob Tremblay. He's probably got, a, so I bet at least 25. I, bet I just looked it up. It's twenty. Twenty. Okay. <laughs> twenty. And 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 nineteen of that was on on face makeup. So. But and you're yeah we're we're coming up with examples, but still it's not there's not a there's not a solid market for for movies in this this budget. And to say that these two are, I mean, no one here is disputing that these are number one and number two of well, Jake, you might be, you might be. <laughs> I I love Hot Fuzz, but it. it as much as I love it, if I had to be objective and make a greatest films list of 2007, it would be No Country, There Will Be Blood. If I if I had to do my favorite, they would not be in that order. Okay. I okay. mean, they, that's they wouldn't be. Totally, totally fair. Uh, but th- and that's that's more what I'm getting at is these these mid-tier movies, these, you know, fairly still cheap and inexpensive films are among not not just among the best pictures of their year, but among the best of the 21st century that we've had so far. That's remarkable. And I'd probably, you know, maybe one, two of the century, these two films. Um, I don't know Ooh. if I'd 100% say that. I mean, I think The Tree of Life's here. I mean, uh, I think Take Shelters on my, my top 10 list. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly where it'd fall, but I mean, it'd probably be at least very close, these two in the number one and two spot. Man, those are all really good. Jake, where would you, uh, where would you land on the the century so far this that's such a tough one because Shaun of the dead is one of my favorite movies ever and i i think it's it does so much for me but if we're talking the best no country is in there um i I think mulholland drive which is 2001 but it still counts Mm -hmm. so mulholland Mm -hmm. drive has to be in the discussion um 
Mad Max Fury Road is there for me. Yeah, I, I me mean, too. It's it's really tough. And then you get smaller ones like something like Francis Ha could be included as well. But I I think I think No Country is is the number one for me. And and it, I can't fault anybody for putting there will be blood up there as well. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm in the same boat as both of you guys. Mostly, I mean, so, some others. The Departed, which I think I like more than both of you. Um, Silence, actually, even above that, as far as like objective achievement. Um, and then we've got you know the if I can only take one Wes Anderson, we've got the Royal Tenenbaums. We've also got Grand Budapest Hotel. It's probably Grand Budapest. Easily, yeah. and and Darjeeling Limited. Well, and then we've also we've got Brick. We've got yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff so far. Francis Ha would definitely be a contender. Hans Labyrinth would probably cont- uh, contester for me. Children of Men and too. adaptation. Adaptation yeah. is definitely in the running um, for me. So yeah, I, I mean, but to say these these two, I think would be both near the top, like. At the top for my uh, for my objective, and still near the top for my favorite. No country world man, definitely in contention. And, and the important part is that no one will get laughed out of a room for picking either of these for the best of the decade, or for the best of the century. But you know what, Jake? What? We have to decide which of these is the best of of the year, of the decade, perhaps of the century. But uh, we can we can leave that one for another day. So so how are we going to do that? Well, Jake, we are going to have a little head-to-head Civil War showdown, but uh, that's going to be after the break. So, folks, stick around because we will be back and we're going to draw up some battle lines and pit these two films against each other. Plus, Chris will pick the perfect beer to pair with the winner of the Civil War showdown. Is it going to be a Texas beer? We will see. Peterson, Jake, Midnight Warriors, we have reached the uh, final climactic conclusion where we have to put these two films, No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood, head to head against each other and actually determine which is the best film of 2007 and perhaps the best film of the century. Who knows? Uh, So to do this, we've drawn up five categories and we're going to pit them head to head in each category and then... At the end, we're ultimately going to decide our verdict and see where the dust settles and who our victor is. So, uh, Jake, do you want to kick us off with this uh, this first battle? All right. First up is Master of the Landscape. And this includes not just the landscape, but all cinematography in the films. And we're talking about There Will Be Blood's work from Robert Elswit and the great Roger Deakins on 
No Country for Old Men. Chris, what do you think? Oh, you're going to throw it to me first. Um, So this is something I, I intentionally didn't bring it up in our review uh, on either side because I knew we were going to talk about it here. Um, I think if there are any flaws and there will be blood, the cinematography might be one that feels a little bit dated. Can, can I can I point something out? I thought some of it was really blown out. Well, and that's that's what I'm saying by dated. Yeah. It it feels well. It, it it feels a little bit of the time, and maybe even a little bit beyond the time, because it's doing that that bleach bypass thing, mm-hmm. um, which is very intentionally blowing out the highlights and and doing this real crunchy contrasty thing. And it it I I think that is a creative decision that they might not have made. Uh, if they made that movie today and it, it stands out as a, perhaps a bad decision shot on film digitally colored. Um, probably so because they're not Tony Scott who actually would do stuff like this, but actually chemically do it and just Mm -hmm. burn into the film and say, whatever I get, I get. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, probably so, but still it's, I mean, it's one of those things. It doesn't ruin the film for me, but it does take me back a little bit and, mm-hmm. and make me say, mm, it, it could be, it, it feels, I know sort of when this was made just by seeing it versus Roger Deakins, who, I mean, this guy was up for two uh, Academy Awards against himself with this and the assassination of Jesse James versus the coward Robert Ford did not win for either of them. I think that is a travesty. I've got to go with Roger Deakins. This is if not my favorite film by him ever, it's it's definitely up there. And it's up there for the most beautiful movie ever shot, in my opinion. So I'm going with Deacons on this one. See, I don't know. For me, the first half of No Country Old Men is a really incredible achievement. And then the second half, as good as the cinematography is, I think that second hour is not quite as strong. Whereas I think the entirety of The Ruby Blood it's really pushing the envelope of what kind of PTA and Ellsworth can do. You know, there's that incredible I, 10 minutes of the oil derrick just burning. And it's, you know, I mean, there's certainly staged moments of it, but there's a physicality and a raw emotion that I think Ellsworth and PTA can really push forward. That I don't really feel in the entirety of the country. I feel in the first half, but the second half is just I, I don't know. It's it's not quite as strong to me visually. Do you know where it falls off for you? I think once it gets to the point where it's a lot of interior moments, that's mm-hmm. when I think No Country isn't as interesting. And I think that the interior shots and the interior moments of There Will Be Blood are the strengths of the film. I think um, that's when I think there's incredible you know, that moment when. Um, Dion Plainview is essentially negotiating the sale of the Sunday ranch and mm-hmm. his entire face is completely in the dark yeah. and, and purposefully. And you can see everything else except for his face. And then every once in a while you'll turn and you'll see the light. And it's not a flaw of the film. And not to say the cinematography in No Country for Old Men in the second half is bad. It's just – Something to me is lacking in that second half that is kind of really firing on all cylinders in the first half. Um, and, I, you know, and I think there's the final shot of The Ruby Blood is, I think, you know, we'll get there, but it's it's gorgeous. I think it's seeing him hunched over in the kind of beaten out corpse of uh, Dano is 
it's a really striking final image kind of from the, you, know, you take the beginning to the end of there will be blood. That is a really stark contrast when you look at the two of them. So I don't know. I'm yeah, going to, sure. it's not a, it's not a big win, but for me, it goes to there will be blood probably just a little bit. I don't, I don't want to throw a lot of shade on there will be blood for this one. Cause I, I, I do think it looks great. But unfortunately, it's just I think it looks great most of the time. And I'm with Chris on this, and I think it's going to look a little more dated down the road or a product of its time where I, I think uh, I think there will be bloods. I mean, I think uh, No Country for Old Men is just a beautiful film, and I never thought about, oh, that looks this way or this looks that way. Um, probably less um, experimental. I don't know if that's the right word or pushing the envelope as much, but I, I think it's perfection. So I, I got it. My votes for uh, my votes for no country. I am shocked, Jake. I know. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry to, to shock you, Chris. Okay. Well, uh, how about you kick off this next one? We've got uh, for, the, for the next battle line, we've got the single minded sociopath. So we've got Daniel Plainview versus Anton Chigurh. Uh, Jake, do you want to tell us uh, who you think would win? Uh, so what am I judging? The the job they did acting, the character themselves. I, I mean, I mean, you can judge it on whatever criteria you want. You can frame it however, however you like. I mean, if you want it to be uh, like a the the bowling pin versus the the cattle inoculator, you can <laughs> approach it that way. Whatever. <laughs> so, so here's what I think: both films, these characters are a requirement for them to work, um, and the performances that went into them are unique and necessary and um, timeless in a way. I think they're great. It's hard for me to not pick Plainview. Because, because of the performance? Because of... It's, it's the performance. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a larger-than-life performance that'll uh, be talked about as one of the greatest performances ever, I believe. And he stitches this whole thing together. He is the center of it. He's on screen for two and a half hours, which is, I think, 45 minutes longer than Ebert said one man should be on screen. He's a pleasure to watch the entire time. He's great. He brings an astounding energy to it. He's an interesting, complex character. Uh, I'm voting Plainview. That that probably surprises you, Chris. Wow, what a shocker. Okay, what about what about you, Peterson? Well, so now I'm trying to recontextualize whether or not it should be performance. Because performance, I think it's Day Lewis. Now I think if we're going to say who's the more sociopathic, murderous you know, <laughs> enjoyable person on screen. I think it's Shigor. Um, I think it's Bardem. So yeah. <clears throat> to me, looking at it, I I mean, it's tough, but I, I mean, I'd probably say it's Bardem in No Control Men because he's just, I mean, I'd, I'd probably rather have a conversation with Daniel Plainview than I would with uh, Anton Shigor. If I'm really being honest about it, I think that's probably the more enjoyable person to talk to. Not yeah. that either of them would be great kind of bar fodder at all. But um, I, I think Daniel Plainview has at least a semblance of a soul, whereas Anton Shigur is just – he is a black pit. Yeah. So probably – I'm going to lean Shigur on this one. Shigur is a, is a modern take on on hooded death. He doesn't yeah, play sure. chess. He flips a coin, but it's the same. He's he's, yeah. Yeah. and I think Plainview is a much more complex character. I mean, I think yes. I mean, I do think Plainview is more complex character. So I mean, it's 
I guess it's the, the criteria is the question, I guess. it's. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I'm glad I, we know, could flip I, on this uh, this vote. <laughs> just go exactly opposite of what Chris thought. I, well, and you know, I came into this thinking I was going to give it to Shiger, Um because ultimately it comes down to I think if I ran into each one independently, um, I think Plainview would actually be more menacing directly. Like he would be more overtly in your face menacing if you do nothing to him. Versus Shiger, Um, if I just seeing him like if i haven't done anything and and there's nothing that he needs from me i'm safe but i still wouldn't feel safe what about that haircut though come on <laughs> i I, just, I mean you, you think you, you wouldn't be able to take him seriously with the haircut i mean i think that black jacket and that just like stare he looks like i mean i don't even know he's he he looks like he's come from another planet. Like he's he's an alien who is trying, in a very poor way, to fit in with everyone else. Um, he's terrifying. But I, I and that is all to say that um, I wasn't really considering the performance. But I'm gonna I think I'm gonna have to side with Jake on this. Just in the um, what uh, Daniel Day Lewis is putting into. Uh, the Daniel Plainview character. And there is a lot to chew on. There is a lot of scenery that he does chew on. And um, there's steak too. (laughs) Steak as well, uh, which maybe we'll get to in a second. Um, But I, you know, I think, um, I I think you could write a much longer dissertation on Daniel Plainview than perhaps you could on Anton Chigurh. Um, And so I'm going to go with Daniel Plainview. I like how I went with like performance, and you're like, who who could have a longer dissertation on this? <laughs> Plain view. Next, Plain, Travis Bickle is not view. on the table. Then Daniel Plainview. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Jake. What do we have next? All right, up next is Sonic Superiority. So I guess we're going to score the score, but not out of a score this time. We are talking about Greenwood's drone, and there will be blood versus the silence and. Really, no music at all in this in in No Country for Old Men. The the foley, the incredible foley, <laughs> and the deafening silence. Yeah. So it's more than the score. It's all. It's everything. Yeah. It's it's the entire. It's it it's literally the soundtrack. The track okay. of sound. Peterson, where do you fall on this? Um, I fall with really blood pretty pretty handily. I mean, I love the silence and the kind of really tiny details of sound that go into No Country for Old Men. But at the end of the day. I think that Johnny Greenwood's score is just unbelievable. I think it's one of the great scores of all time, um, if not the great. I mean, certainly I think the great score of this century. Um, mm-hmm. And you pair that with everything that PTA is doing with sound design. It's just, I think it's pretty unbeatable. Um, I don't really know. I mean, I don't know how else to – Verbalize other than the fact that it's just both him and Greenwood. You add what they're doing, the sensibilities combining. It's just it's two people in sync with each other in a way that I don't know if we've really seen mm-hmm. ever. Maybe I mean it's it's reminiscent of two thousand one, which is you know obviously a big uh, comparison that a lot of people usually make between uh, the score of that as well as what Kubrick's doing. So. I think it's pretty handily to me goes to there will be blood. I apparently ripped that bandaid off earlier. Don't love the score. And you can come back to me when I hear, uh, uh, PT Anderson have a, a, a peanut wrapper unravel on a table. (laughs) 
<laughs> no country. Next. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I've got to side with Jake on this one, and not because I, I am a big fan of Johnny Greenwood's score in There Will Be Blood. I think it is pivotal to the film working. I think um, it is a, a real, like, it, it very early on kind of gives you a sense of the chaos going on, or not chaos, but the 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 conflict or the I, I think Daniel Plainview is a character who is he is aware of his flaws, um, but he cannot save himself from his own flaws. And there's something to the score that that sort of it feels like that, um, which is is the only way that I can I can express like uh, exactly like what really works about it for me. I think it's super effective, but I think just the what it takes to walk in and say hey. We're going to make this movie. It's going to be just over two hours long and there's hardly going to be a note played in it. We're, we're going to have a scene play out in total silence and it's going to be terrifying. And it's going to work. Um, that is a really ballsy decision to make and, and to sell and to convince whoever at the studio that they should allow you to do it. And it is so effective and so perfect. And I think the silence in uh, no Country for Old Men is as pivotal to that movie working as the Johnny Greenwood score, but it's it's the actual uh, the fact that they were they thought through and they said you know what we need nothing we've got Carter Burwell we're going to put his name in the credits and he's basically going to do nothing that is incredibly brave and also extremely effective. And, and I'm with you, and, and, and to put some of my actual opinions into words, um, the movie wouldn't work without the silence. It's it's absolutely yeah. necessary, and in a way that makes this movie, um, this movie might look like it's supposed to look 500 years from now, and still have something yeah. to say 500 years from now, where taste and music can change and all these other things. And I, I know I'm not trying to take away from a movie that has a score just because it has music. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm I'm just saying it's gonna. It, it is such a timeless film, I believe. And it, and it has, Jake, I'm gonna go ahead and out you as a, as someone who doesn't care for Radiohead either. So there's also that. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Next. And moving on, our uh, our next battle lines are it's quotability. And so I'm calling this one. I drink your milkshake versus looking for a man who recently drunk milk. <laughs> Jake, where do where do you fall on this one? So I, I'm someone who loves Coen Brothers, obviously, and I quote them pretty much daily. But it's mostly it's mostly uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But uh, I, I do like looking for a man who's recently drunk milk, and and I like No Sir, it is unusual. Uh, that's another one that works its way in. But uh, it's the delivery of that one that that, that works so yeah, well. Yeah, that little store clerk just. Oh, sir, it is unusual. <laughs> I, and and I, by the way, in that scene, I, I love that when he walks in, he's like, how are those boots doing for you? He just doesn't even address it at first. <laughs> yeah. Just that's the kind of small town service you need. Uh, th- that being said, uh, I have way more often uh, said, I drink your milkshake or or something along those lines. And I've, I once have gone drainage to someone who did not know what I was talking about. Uh, it, it, it's there will be blood. It's Daniel Plainview. It's the voice. It's the way he says the things that he says. And and I drink your milkshake from across the room. All right. Peterson, where do, where do you land on this guy? I think it's pretty easy. I think they're really blood. I mean, it's there was SNL skits coming out <laughs> about the time this movie came out. There were 
about the milkshake scene drainage. You know what I mean? That's yeah, yeah. the delivery. I mean, everything from I have a competition me to um, I've abandoned my boy. Oh, I've abandoned my child. You know, it's uh, and then uh, what's the um, bastard in a basket? Bastard in a basket. Bastard in a basket. When I say I'm an old and you'll believe me. You know, it's a, I think yeah. it's, I, I think it's pretty easily the early blood. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I don't really know. I mean, I think no country men's got some incredible dialogue. I just don't think, I don't think it's really that quotable. I don't yeah. think it's, yeah. you know, most people are going to be like, what is this lunatic saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and even something like no sort is unusual. It's, it, it works for someone who knows it, but for anyone else, it just, feels like a normal line. Whereas no country for old men, you're, I mean, you guys are quoting it as Daniel Plainview, as you are quoting no country for old men. That's, that, that's part of it as well Is it's, it's the character. It's everything. I mean, the the Coen brothers have a lot of quotable films and this, this one has like, I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm going no country for old men. I'm no, I'm sorry. I'm going, there will be blood. Um, no country for old men. It has a lot of great lines to think about and stew on. Um, and then there's also, you know, there's, there's the kid who keeps talking about his bone. Look at your bone. Look at that <laughs> bone. Um, there's, which, which feels very Coen brothers. Um, but yeah, it's, it's basically impossible to go against Daniel Plainview and everything. Like he's just, it is because he's that larger than life character and he is so loquacious um, that there's just so much to quote. Maybe if Anton Shkor came in and said, I'd like to come into your house at night when you're sleeping and slit your throat. <laughs> maybe, maybe it'd be a little different, but no, it's all. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing with sugar. It's all about the look. It's all about the, like trying to process what's going on because he is silent. Um, it's a different, well, and you know, Llewellyn Moss, he's a, he's a silent sort of dude as well. He doesn't say much. There's, uh, I mean, when he does speak, there's some pretty great, funny little, little bits. Uh, but yeah, it's still, it's, it, it, this is, this may be the only one where we all three align on one film and it happens to be, there will be blood. That's pretty amazing. There will be blood happens to be winning right now. Hmm. The last thing we've got, the last battle line is the happy ending. So <laughs> such happy endings. <laughs> So this is between I'm finished and, and then I woke up. So Peterson, where do you stand on this? Um, so I think both are pretty perfect endings. I think that Nurka Storman is about as great as endings you can get. I, I don't think it, that moment with Ed Tom Bell is just, it's Tommy Lee Jones delivering this monologue and the Coen brothers don't leave his face for a good two minutes and he is just weathered and weary, and it really just it dispels all of the promise of what the movie's been building up to. And also, if you think about it, what Court McCarthy and then John Hilkett would do in The Road, it really continues those two things forward in a way that hadn't been done early in the film. And so, I think it's a great ending. I think that. Really, when I look at the ending of There Will Be Blood, though, it is really from the time jump up to uh, the 1928, I believe, is the year. Mm-hmm. That year forward is, you know, that whole time frame is what I consider the ending. I don't consider it the, even if I did consider it the final scene with him in 
uh, Eli Sunday, I think it's a great scene, but it's everything from the bastard in the basket scene to um, the milkshake scene and the finally saying I'm finished. I think the ending of uh, The Really Blood is a staggering and really, at the time, a difficult uh, ending. I didn't really yeah. comprehend exactly what was going on. And the more I see it, the more I feel it is the logical and perfect conclusion of what P.T. Anderson has been building up to in that time frame. So it's a it's a tough decision for the ending for me, but I'm going to have to go a little bit more there, Willie Blood, just for I think it is the really – for what is a really incredibly messy film. And I think that's you know one thing that could be knocked against the Willie Blood, but I think it is – one of the things that I love about it, I think it's a messy film that ends in a perfectly messy, you know, really ambiguous, ambivalent way that has you walking out questioning everything that's been going on. Whereas I think New Country for Men is a little bit more straight down the middle. Well, this is what the ending's really doing. I don't think it's asking as many questions as the really blood is. I agree with you, but I think it's sort of like there will be blood. It's almost like the train comes into the station and then it decompresses, you know, that last 20 minutes in, in 1927. Um, it's, it's almost, and it's, it's almost like doing Tarantino ending like kill bill volume two, where it's, it's a, it's a risk to close that way. Um, and I think it works, but then you've got on the other end, you've got this kind of feather light ending with no country for old men. Um, where it's, we've been, we've been dealing with the same sort of, uh, compression of, uh, of, of this looming, just unknowingness of, of fate and, and feudalism, uh, over the whole thing. And so, uh, you don't have to touch on a whole lot. Like you, you know what he's talking about. And so that just, and then I woke up is it's the punctuation that, uh, that that works for me there. And, you know, as I'm, I guess I'll, I'll come up and, and, and go with mine as I'm saying all this, I don't know where I'm going to end, where I'm going to land. I really don't. Um, and so I'm trying to vamp and talk myself into one over the other. I think I mean, my gut, my gut says, uh, there will be blood because, uh, it's while it is this, as I was saying earlier, this kind of dense, hefty, uh, sort of, sort of thing. It's, it's not the ending that I want to experience the most, but, um, for some of the things that that you're saying, Peterson, you know, the, there's a lot to chew on and there's, there's a whole lot to explore, but it's just, it, I, I guess it's the difficulty of trying to pull that off and pulling it off that, uh, I have to applaud. This is a very hard choice. Because these movies both needed to have these necessary challenging endings. I think that the Daniel Plainview character finally really letting loose um, and and solving that conflict is great. But I think in No Country for Old Men, this scene is necessary. This scene is the whole movie. I don't think the movie has a point without the last scene. Um, and particularly the, the light way that it just goes out and leaves you on his face after his dream. That really is the metaphor for the whole movie. Uh, and it cuts to black and it lets you think about it. 
it's it's one of those where if, if you see it in a theater, you got to sit. You can't get up and walk away. You have to sit there and stare at the yeah. screen and process it and understand it and take that last nugget of information and reassess the whole movie and who was the main character and what it was about and what it was trying to say and what everything in the whole movie meant. And you are Tommy Lee Jones or Ed Tom, and you have to understand this world. I I think it's a it's a genius, necessary, bold, unique ending that goes down as one of the the greatest endings. Uh, and to me, it's up there with uh, another movie that I think ends perfectly, which is Being There. Um, this is is in the very very top tier. Wait, when when you say the ending of Being There, do you mean the thing that happens at the end involving the umbrella? Or do you mean the thing that happens over the credits of being there? <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I think that if this cut to black and then you, you saw Anton Shagor cracking up in the coin toss scene for five minutes, it, w- it wouldn't be as strong of an ending. I, I hear you, okay? <laughs> maybe, maybe not being, down, being there down to the, the top of the next tier and, 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 leave their, <laughs> and leave No Country for Old Men as my number one greatest ending of all time. It gets my vote. That's it. It, it had it had to happen. It is the whole movie. No, well, there will be blood. You're you don't even have the risk of those those outtakes happening because Daniel Day Lewis is not going to break character. No, he's never flubbed the line. No, never. Um, okay, so we're let let me add up real quick. No Country for Old Men has six votes, and there will be blood has nine votes. But the final verdict is not based on just votes alone. Uh, Ultimately, those tallies don't even count because it's going to come down to where we stand, where we vote on which of these films is is the best of the two. Good, because if it had come down to that, I would have protested it because I have a competition in me, Chris. <laughs> okay, so Jake, you let, let's hear. I, 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 we all know that you're going to go. No country for old men. It, it, it is. Despite what I said earlier, the the more I talk about it, the more I think it is the best film of the century. I, I don't think any anything tops it, and I don't have a. And it may just be a preference thing. Uh, no country speaks to me in a way that there will be blood does not speak to me. And I appreciate them both, but No Country is one that has my heart, and it has my vote. That's 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 the one. Uh, I reassessed them. There will be blood moved up on on this rewatch. It moved up my list. I enjoyed it more. I appreciated it more. It might be that I'm aging, but I enjoyed No Country more as well. Okay, so no surprise there, uh, Peterson. Let's go to you because I assume probably no surprise with you either. But uh, where do you land? Are you, are you going with There Will Be Blood? And if so. Tell us why. Well, it was a closer kind of tally at the end of the day for me than I thought. You know, I walked in this thinking through blood was going to kind of wipe the floor with no controlment. And it didn't, you know, that's, you know, 10 years ago when I did my top 10 for 2007, I actually had no control men above it, pretty well above it as well. And there were blood as movie that just seasoned better and better with time for me. And, the more I watch the Ruby Blood, the more I get out of it. Every time I watch it, there's something new. And I think Mineral Control Men, as great as it is, the little things I take out of it each time now are more set dressing things, like the boots scraping against the ground in the beginning of Mineral Control Men. I'm not really taking thematic things out of it anymore. 
Whereas there will be blood, I'm really constantly thinking about it as this massive American individualistic uh, film about, you know, what we stand for in America, the two things that kind of define the American West, which is capitalism and religion, um, what that has meant for American life since then. So for me, I think it's There Will Be Blood, not by a ton, but I think There Will Be Blood has kind of cemented itself in my top five films of all time probably now. It's a movie that I return to probably every couple of years, you know, this is probably the longest span I've gone without seeing it since it came out. And I think the last time I saw it was probably 2012. So I think uh, early blood for me is probably, it is the definitive American epic of maybe the last 30 years for me. I mean, the, I can't think of anything since maybe Ron that, and that's not even an American film, but I think Ron was the last great film or do the right thing. Maybe that is, the last great American film. Let me ask: Have you uh, have you caught up with uh, Rules Don't Apply yet? I no, I have not yet. <laughs> it, you know, it's it's on the list. Um, you know, I, I I look forward to your angry tweets after you watch it. <laughs> you know, I decided you know watch Mudbound instead. You know, so <laughs> okay. Well, that's fair and uh, not not a surprise. But that's okay. So that's you're you're saying. I mean, you're, you're giving this really high praise. Um, I, gosh, you know, my, my approach is a little bit the same as yours as far as like 2007. Um, I was very much the same way as far as like, I, I was no country for old men at the tippy tippy top. And then there will be blood. Like I said, like I, I was a little lukewarm on it the first time through. And I kind of knew I would be because I knew my relationship with BT Anderson, um, but it is warmed up to me more and more and more each time I revisit. And, um, there's really, it's, it's really hard to find things to, uh, even nitpick about either really. Um, and, and so for me, it's, I, I you know, if I'm speaking objectively, I might have to go with there will be blood as far as just scope and technical achievement. I mean, especially when you consider that these are both within the same budget, like it's, it's pretty remarkable um, what PTA accomplishes with, with this budget. Uh, But at the end of the day, um, gosh, it's the, the thing about no country for old men is there are some beloved movies that movies that I loved the first time I saw them. And I have continued to love that, um, I, I see them so many times that it's not that they lose their charm, but it's, they don't have anything else to offer to me. And no country is still a little bit of, um, I guess it's not a puzzle, but it's more of a, it's a, it's a personal challenge or it's a, uh, it's almost, you know, it's a meditation. And, and so I'm, I'm still find myself getting, uh, something out of the, the, mental gymnastics that it puts me through. And it's, you know, it's the type of film I've said this before. It's the type of film that if it is on TV, I will end up watching the rest of the entire movie, uh, because it just draws me in. And so I've, I've got to go with Jake on this and I've got to go with no country for old men for my vote. Wow. Um, so, so I guess it is official that war starts at midnight. Um, we invite guests on only to shove their face in the dirt and say the movie that you like better 
We don't like it as much. <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming and defending the poo-poo. Well, you know, luckily we know one quotable line from No Control Men. No beer leaves more, more of? More bear. <laughs> more bear. <laughs> Which the first probably few times I thought she was saying bear. <laughs> So, yeah, I was really like I thought. I thought she was because he's carrying the rifle. I thought she was trying to make some like bear hunting joke. So you're really going <laughs> deep into the context clues here. So, so Chris, when we sit down with a six pack of bears to watch this, what should we have? Polar, grizzly, brown? Oh gosh, this is this has maybe been the toughest, uh, or one of one, at least one of the toughest beer pairings in a while because I know I had to go with something that wasn't just going to be some kitschy like oh see how these two things are the same with the name or whatever, but. Um, I wanted to go with a beer that would do the winner justice. And I think I've picked the right thing here, uh, because it is, I don't know if it's the best beer I've ever had, but I, I, I'm going to say it's definitely top three. Uh, this beer, it is called yellow belly and it's made by, uh, the gypsy brewer Omnipolis, and they are out of, I believe they're out of Sweden, but they uh, do sort of, sort of like uh, McKellar, who I've, I've recommended some of his stuff before. Um, they do collaborations with breweries and they travel around. And so they will brew in breweries all across the world. They've actually, uh, they've done a beer with uh, Prairie Artisan Ales in Oklahoma. Um, but this is, this is a exceptional beer above and beyond basically anything I've, I've ever had. They made this one in collaboration with uh, Buxton brewery in the UK. It is an Imperial stout coming in at 11% ABV. So the little kitschy uh, thing that I have, the, the one kitschy thing that I have to offer here is it's a double uh, stout for a double feature. If you will, if you're going to, uh-huh. if you're going to watch these two together, which I don't know that that's a, that's a pretty heavy day. Um, if you watch these two back to back, I watched them pretty much back to back. Really? How did that go? You know, it's I'm living. I'm <laughs> okay. Living. L-I-V-N, right? That 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 clock just keeps on ticking. Yeah. Um, I watched New Country for All Men more, which I think is maybe the more depressing ending to me. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I I think it depends on your perspective on on either of them, really. But uh, back to the beer, uh, Omnipolis describes this as a peanut butter biscuit stout with no biscuits, butter or nuts. Uh, and, and but the, the thing about this, the thing about this beer is it tastes like a gosh darn Butterfinger in liquid form. Mm. And um, even Jake, who doesn't drink beer, is is getting interested. But I like Butterfingers. <laughs> um and, you know, a lot of times I have problems with these beers that are like, oh, this is a banana bread beer. Or this is a chocolate cake beer or whatever, um, because they, you know, it's like they just add a syrup at the end or, or something to give it a fruity or whatever flavor. This is this is more just in the the notes within the beer. So it's uh, it tastes like a good, rich stout, which is also something great for, uh, you know, we're in December now. We're in the winter. You need to be drinking porters and stouts, folks. Um but then it's got just a real richness uh, and, and an evolution on the palate throughout um, ends on, on this kind of uh, peanut buttery um, slightly, I don't even know, slightly, slightly um, dry uh, 
palatey thing. It's I don't know. It's thick. It's rich. It's chocolatey. It's uh, it's also difficult to find. So I do suggest if you see a bottle of this uh, in your your local liquor store, um, pick it up. It's kind of hard to miss because it's actually with the the name Yellow Belly. Um, it looks like a Klansman, which I know sounds <laughs> crazy. <laughs> But it is it, it it is wrapped in a piece of white paper, and then it has two eye holes cut out. It, and it, so, anything else the, you want to say on your last episode of War Starts at Midnight? <laughs> well, I mean, it's if you read there, you know, they have a statement on the bottle and they have a statement on on their website. It's it's you know, yellow belly in directly saying like it's it's ridiculous to you know all all people are equal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's not it's not as if this is a this is a neo Nazi beer. It is it is exactly the opposite. Especially but, like Casey Affleck and Ghost. I Story. feel like if you need a statement to explain it. <laughs> You maybe no, should have done I, it. No, I don't. I I I disagree. I I it is it is directly it is directly pointing the finger. And if you miss that, like the guy when I bought it at the liquor store did, who literally ripped the paper off because he's like, "This is racist." Um, then whatever. Uh, but no, if you if you see it, buy it, pick it up. Um, you will not be disappointed. That is Yellow Belly by Omnipolo. There Will Be Blood is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, and No Country for All Men is available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. And now that the dust has settled and the debate is over, we want to hear from you. Tell us what we got right. And what we got wrong. At hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. And you're, I think you have to call in and either your best uh, Daniel Day-Lewis as Daniel Plainview voice or your best uh, Anton Schur voice at 484-424-6362. That's 484-BORE-CINEMA. That was terrible, but uh, give it to us. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. We can't do these voices. Is that your girl? She tries to hurry Guys, it has been a long, lengthy review debate. It is uh, by the time we're done with this, it might we might be at the length of No Country for Old Men. Uh, but before we go, I think we need to wrap up the way we always do with some really rad recommendations. So, Peterson, you are our special guest today. So, tell us what do you have to recommend? Yeah, so I've got uh, D. Reese's new film Mudbound. Um, it just premiered on Netflix. 
I want to say two weeks ago, and it is the story of two families. One is a white family that is living on a farm, and then a black family is living as sharecroppers on that same farm, and the black family is renting land from the white family, and then they both have uh, people in the family that have come back from World War II, and that has kind of changed them irrevocably, and it is kind of the confluence of kind of race relations in America, but then adding kind of what war does to people. And then it is kind of packed with kind of a massive wallop in the last 20 minutes that is just, it, you know, it's, it's a very challenging ending and in, in a way that could really test your kind of whether or not you enjoy the film. Um, but it is kind of a massive sprawling American epic that uh, probably won't do any kind of awards season banter because it's a Netflix film, didn't really get a huge distribution. But I really applaud people, you know, go go check it out. It is, you know, certainly the best Garrett Hedlund has ever been on screen. I think he is really magnetic in the role. You know, there's Kelly Merrigan's in it. Um there is Jason Mitchell, who's Easy E in the uh, Straight Out of Compton. Straight Out of Compton, yep. Uh, and then there's uh, Mary J. Blige is in it. Uh, Jason Clark is excellent. Um, the you know the grumpy old guy from Breaking Bad, whatever his name was, um, can't remember it. Um, but he's you know he's very good in it, and it's just a movie that it's certainly feels of a piece with uh, the way kind of epics are brought out, but it has a different rhythm and tone to it that I think is really effective and shows Dee Reese kind of a true evolution of her talent. I mean, she made Pariah a few years ago and then the Bessie Smith biopic Bessie, which I did not see, but um, it makes me really want to go back and watch that. Uh, So I highly recommend Mudbound. Uh, It's a really interesting, if not perfect film, but a really interesting look at a certain time and place in an American South that is really not really shown too much. So I highly recommend seeing Mudbound. Excellent. That's one that I have. It's in my queue. I have yet to catch up with it, but uh, I, I'm looking forward to to trying to see it before the end of the year. Um, Jake, what do you have to recommend? So I recently watched a film that uh, premiered on Chris's Voodoo recently. Uh, the Big Sick, uh, starring Kumail Nanjani and Zoe Kazan. Uh, you, I assume you've seen this, Chris, right? I have seen this. I I like it quite yeah, a bit. This is great. Yeah, uh, I I was really really happy. It doesn't relate to anything we watched today, but uh, it's the true story of uh, Kumail and uh, uh, Emily V. Gordon. Yes, uh, uh, and and how they met. And I I don't want to give too much away for the movie. Uh, but it was it's really good it's a really good comedy and it's directed by Michael Showalter so i'm recommending 2005 Stella on Comedy Central it's about 10 episodes and you really should watch it <laughs> is that fair that's that's fair <laughs> but you failed to mention um just how good uh Ray Romano is he blew me away uh, yeah. yeah he's he's something else I, yeah, and and uh, and and Holly Hunter as well. Like they are, they are so good. They are both in, good. And Ray Romano, film. it's astounding how well he can act and not make me just think I'm looking at Ray Romano. Well, I think the biggest thing that had me kind of in the Ray Romano corner was uh, my wife and I'd watched Parenthood, 
And he plays a pretty significant role in really? kind of the second half of that show. And it's a very, you know, much more dramatic role than he's I, – I, and I didn't watch Everybody Loves Raymond. So, you know, take that for yeah. what you will. But he's kind of seeing him progress from parenthood to now Big Sick. I mean, it's, he really is – he's got a dramatic uh, acting belt that I don't think anyone really thought he had. Yeah, his his character in Vinyl is the best part of that show by far. I'm, I'm waiting for like the, the $20 million movie to come out starring Ray Romano. I don't know if they give him a twenty million, if they give him put him in a five million dollar film or something, but I just want to see him get more work and more screen time. Maybe yeah, maybe he, he was, turns out to be like a Brian Cranston who was really funny and now is really good actor as well. I mean, maybe that's what he needs though a, a drama series. It's possible, um, but if, if you if you want to get a taste of him now, definitely watch The Big Sick. Uh, it's available to, to rent or buy on Vudu, YouTube, Amazon, all, all the usual places. Amazon Prime, it's streaming for free. So. Yeah, it really? just showed up on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's no reason not to watch it. It's incredible. You should definitely catch up with it before the end of the year. Um, I would actually recommend it as a uh, great double feature with Lady Bird. Um, oh, I'm dying to see Lady Bird. I'm it's yeah. it, they 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 I think they complement each other very well. They're not they're not the same movie by any means, but um, both very good. And and on on paper, like movies where it's like, oh, yeah, OK, they're so much better, so much better than uh, they they have any right to be, because, I mean, the, the people involved are all incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Lady Bird is not going to be my recommendation. Uh, I decided, you know, we were talking about films from. Uh, 2007. So I went back through and was trying to find a film from a uh, something seven. And I decided on a film from 40 years ago from 1967. Um, perfectly relevant. Perfectly relevant. Uh, also, also one of my favorite films by one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, it is Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Samurai. Uh, Jake, this is a movie I've been trying to get you to watch for a while now. Um, just came out on Criterion Blu-ray, so maybe the East Baton Rouge Public Library will get it, and you will finally watch it. Oh, it most definitely will, but at this point, I just want to save it for a war crime episode. We can do a war crime episode. I'm totally down for a war crime episode. Awesome. I, I mean, any any Melville that you have not seen, I will war crime with you. Um, there are, And there are some that I haven't seen as well, like Bob the Gambler. Um, but... Uh, this is, this is one of my favorites of his comes, you know, towards the end of his career. He only had a few, a few films left. Um, and I initially thought of it while watching, uh, there will be blood. I watched there will be blood. And then I watched no country for old men. Um, because, uh, this movie is, is one that's very, um, you know, it's dealing with a character who's, uh, kind of very closed off emotionally. And it's also dealing a lot with um, a lot happens in silence as happens actually quite often in Melville's films, I think, which is one of the things that I love about him as a filmmaker. He's, he's a very visual storyteller. Um, but it's, it's about this uh, hitman uh, named Jeff Costello um, played by uh, the, the amazing Elaine Delon, who's amazing in basically everything. Uh, but, but, Gorgeous here. He's he's about thirty years old, and he's just like he is on Paul Newman's level, really, in this film. Wow. Um, and and he plays he plays this super suave, cool hitman. Um, 
And it's it's a pretty small, you know, little story that sort of follows him in in uh, over the course of I don't know, probably it's probably about forty eight hours or so um, as he goes and does a hit, and then he's actually picked up by the police, and then um, you know things sort of unravel, but it never gets too big. It never gets to be like this big. Oh, you see the entire workings of. Uh, you know, the machine that hired him and, and all this, it's really focused on his personal journey. Um, and it's, I, I don't know, they don't, to say no one makes films like this anymore would, would maybe be just off because I don't think anyone but Melville could have made this film. I guess, well, I say that and then Jim Jarmusch sort of remade it with uh, Ghost Dog, Spirit of the Samurai. Yeah, but it's a little bit. Is- the quality of this, this no, is. nowhere near it as good. It's, I mean, it's, and it's not a bad film, but it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't touch this as far as like, um, this, I mean, it, it's what a hour and 40 minutes, maybe in a little change. And it just, everything, everything is in its right place. It's beautifully, beautifully shot almost. I mean, it's shot in, in, in color, but almost feels because the palette that he uses almost feels black and white. So anytime you get a touch of color, it really pops and the skin really pops on screen. Um, and I don't know the, everyone, Jake included, you need, if you haven't seen Lee Samurai, check it out. It's on Filmstruck. Um, you might be able to find it at the local library. You can also rent it at all the usual places. Um, really a delight if, and if you're unfamiliar with Melville, this might be, this might be a good entryway as well. Um, because it's, it's definitely everything that he does in his films, uh, really distilled down to the bare bones of just what works. Yeah. Can't secondhand that recommendation enough. So, but is it the best film of its century? Cause that's what we were dealing with on this episode. <laughs> so, oh gosh, I, <laughs> No, it's not. But but you need you need to see it anyway, Jake. We will we will war crime this in the future. Sorry, I'm sure. only watching best film of the century candidates right now. So <laughs> I don't I don't know if there's any from the last one that I haven't seen yet. But if you can think of one, send it what, to me. What about the nineteenth century? Do we need Ooh. to do we need do we need to go through and figure out for the best film of the nineteenth century? I, I, I've seen naked woman hopping from rock to rock. Does that count? <laughs> I think I I think that was early twentieth. Oh man! I'm gonna I'm gonna say because that's Edison. I'm gonna say that's like 1902. I was gonna say it was like 1898, but there's only what three years, four years of cinema in ninth century. Uh, 1896, I believe. Yes, yeah, so four. The, yeah, yeah. That's. Anyway, we this is this is a discussion for another time. If if we ever do if we ever do nineteenth century cinema, uh, Peterson, we will definitely have you back. Best of. Until then, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes and more. Or say hello on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WSAM Pod. And Peterson, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, the Twitters or the likes? Yeah, uh, feel free to follow me at uh, Peterson W Hill. As my Twitter handle, and then I uh, write it uh, psychodriving.com. So, been a little bit silent because been a little bit hectic this fall, but uh, about to kick back up with a couple things in December. Excellent. I'll link to both of those in the show notes for uh, this episode. And if you enjoy the show, you should uh, rate and subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. 
On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And the feature music on this week's episode is by Generationals. Find more at generationals.com. Join us in another fortnight for a brand new episode of The Carpenter Shop, our ongoing exploration of John Carpenter's colossal canon. This time, we're exploring the seaside ghost story of century-old saber-wielding sailors. From 1980, it's The Fog. You can find it streaming now on Shudder, check it out at your local library, or pick up the collector's edition steelbook from Scream Factory. Well, Peterson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. And uh, thanks for listening, folks. It's one goddamn hell of a show you got there. I'm finished.